This week, we have Raul Rodriguez joining us. Raul is not only a former Division I football player, he's also a U.S. Olympic athlete, uh, bringing home a silver medal from the 1988 Olympics in Seoul for the U.S. rowing team, uh, as well as a successful Wall Street trader and uh, just general businessman. Raul was one of my first bosses uh, back in the Wall Street days. He was also one of the best leadership examples I've, I've seen in my life personally. So we're proud to have him on the, on the podcast today. In the second half of the podcast, we talk a lot about Raul's career as an options trader. Uh, and in doing so, we get a little bit technical with uh, kind of financial jargon. Uh, hopefully you can follow along and listen to his stories about battle in the pits and uh, making decisions on the fly. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Die Living Podcast. Well, uh, yeah, let's get started. Thanks for joining us, man. Appreciate you coming down, making the trip. Um, we'll do the intro afterwards. See, but it's like usually easier for us to roll into conversation naturally. Yeah, well, that's what we, we will. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll start it at some point. It's all good. <laughs> some um, point the podcast will begin. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, we, we chatted upstairs a little bit before coming down, but I'd love to kind of start off with like your background. Um, you know, how you got into, especially how you got into sports, like, you know, how you went from basically like football to crew, like what that experience was like, and then how you kind of transitioned from being like essentially a professional athlete to getting into the business world. Uh, and we'll talk about kind of a lot of the mindset stuff and that kind of stuff along the way. Well, sure. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. Um, I, my family's Cuban. I'm from New Orleans. I grew up, I was actually born in Ann Arbor. Uh, my dad's a physician, grew up in New Orleans, so I, we moved to New Orleans when I was two. And uh, in Cuba, actually, rowing was a really big deal. And uh, I mean, after baseball, rowing was the second, you know, um, most popular sport. And my father started medical school. In Cuba, he went from high school to medical school. So he started medical school when he was 17. And Cuba, you started rowing when you were 16, so you only got to row one year. And three years later, so he's 20, and there's a revolution going on. It's 1957, and he transfers to Tulane Medical School. So he finishes medical school in the U.S., goes back to Cuba, um, gets married, uh, takes his boards because he thinks he's going to go back to Cuba when he graduates, but does a residency at the University of Michigan. And uh, and so you know, so you flash floor, forward about I don't know ten, twelve years. Uh, a bunch of his friends in Miami had started a rowing team, and now he's living in New Orleans with me. I have th uh, three brothers and a sister. Where in New Orleans did you grow up? Um, we grew up on the near the lakefront in New Orleans. Okay, so um, more of a it's in New Orleans, but it's in more of a newer section. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not one of those grand, you know. No, no, it's cool. Garden I, district. I was Destrehan trash, so. Like, oh, are you really? Yeah, yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't talk any like smack. We, I was like, we, where in New Orleans? We played them. Yeah, so um, I went to Jesuit High School in New Orleans. Okay. Um, anyway, so my dad 
I started a team and taught me how to row. And you know, and he taught me and my brothers. And for him, rowing was just um, this is the '70s, and rowing was a male sport to my dad. And so my sister never learned to row. Um, and then, but I was a football player as well. So I, I went to college on a football scholarship, and I was really widely recruited football player. And this is one of the things I wanted to mention, Aaron, that you know, life's crazy about peaks and valleys. You know, I mean, for some people, it's it's all. You know, it's all peaks. But Doug, for, for, Doug's for, one of those guys. I, just yeah, like a, I, a straight line but up. Not for I don't me. even want to hear this <laughs> yeah. bullshit. Not, not, for, not for me, though, you know. So I, I'm really widely recruited. I get, I'm get offered a scholarship by LSU and Alabama and Auburn and Ole Miss. And, what were you playing? I played offensive tackle. All right. And um, I was fortunate. I was a good student and at, on a great team. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our team was widely recruited. I'm sure nowadays I wouldn't be recruited at all because kids are so – uh, you know, um, schooled up and um, evaluated, where back then it was more just, you know, what your coach said about you and that sort of thing. And uh, anyway, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna row. In, I'm gonna play football in college, and I go to Tulane. I was gonna go to Michigan, and I go to Tulane last minute. Why'd um, you decide that? Because it's one thirty in the morning on the Wednesday, the signing day, and my the coach from Tulane is in my house. And um, coach from Michigan <laughs> is at the airport Hilton Hotel in New Orleans. He's going to come by at 8 o'clock for me to sign my scholarship. And my sister and mother, my sister was a sophomore at, or a freshman at Tulane at the time. Um, and she's balling, and my mom's balling. That I'm leaving town. I'm going. And, and, is this and like in the, fairness, is this like the small vestige of Latin culture it that's is, been maintained? It is. <laughs> and, and, you know, actually, it's a really sensitive thing because, uh, you know, my parents, road leaving Cuba to the U.S. was not easy. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, they go from their lives in Cuba to um, they were actually evicted from um, an apartment in Ann Arbor. I mean, it was tough times. They had, in short order, uh, um, my dad, uh, uh, well, my parents, my grandparents, my dad's parents, um, and then an, an aunt and an uncle of mine, so two of my dad's siblings, and my sister and me were all living in the same, in a, like a three bedroom apartment. And um, you guys had, I mean, the family had a good life in Cuba, right? Very, very. I mean, I, I mean, uh, they, had a, mean, com- they the, had a comfortable life after the revolution. I feel like well, yeah, there weren't I, a lot of people that had. A well, good you life. know, I mean, and they all left. You know, kind of, you know, really, just before the children all left. My dad and his siblings all left really before the revolution. I guess my my youngest uncle probably just after. Um, they left as students, and then my grandparents um, immigrated to the U.S. Um, shortly thereafter. Like my 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 dad's parents came over, uh, basically on a visa to visit their granddaughter, who was just born in 1961, and they stayed. Yeah. And they basically left their entire lives. They claim behind. asylum, or well, yeah. I mean, Cubans were automatically granted political asylum. I think this is the term. I mean, I'm yeah, pretty sure. So. Um, so yeah, then my mom's parents left. I'm not exactly sure of the circumstances, um, but they left. And he he was an orthodontist, and he became um, I think he taught um, at University of Texas um, dentistry. Mm-hmm. So um, he died when I was very young. Um, anyway, back to the, the, the so I, I, I arrive at Tulane. I'm a widely recruited ball player, and I was the absolute complete bust of a football player. I was just I went from being thinking I was gonna, 
you know, really make a difference to um, to just not even being relevant. And it was awful. And I, after my junior year, I ended up quitting football. And I literally, I, I, I was, I was. I'd lost all self-esteem. What what happened? I mean, was it you know? Like- it's just a, it's just a. I don't, what happened? I mean, a lot of things that happened. But you know, I was I was there. I was I was somewhat serious student. I had a girlfriend. I was in a fraternity, and football was just you know not a high enough. It was not high enough a priority for me, and I just didn't do very well at it. And I was embarrassed by the whole thing. And um, so I decided, you know, I wanted to do something before I stopped you know, doing sports and I wanted, and I had enjoyed rowing and I wanted to get back into rowing. And my goal was to become an Olympic rower. Had been when I was a kid. And, uh, when I first learned how to row when I was like 11. And, um, I mean, I still remember the day my dad sat me down and it was like explaining, this is the iron curtain and these are the bad guys. And if you're an athlete, you can compete against them. And I thought that was just like the coolest thing. And I just wanted to hopefully get to do that. And um, Rocky Ford. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I so I, I moved to Philadelphia, and um, this is, but you finished school, right? I, I I finished undergrad and actually had started um, graduate school um, in Philly or in New Orleans okay. uh, at Tulane. Okay, and um, and I took a leave of absence to go and train for the Olympics, and then two years later I went back and finished up. So uh, I just out of curiosity, like. I feel like we may have missed something here. Like, how do you go from being a low self-esteem college football player who feels like you burned out to someone who has reasonable aspirations to be an Olympic rower? Well, did you just make up in your mind and like someone was like, wow, that boy's tall. You know, we had won a, um, a national championship in the U S when I was, um, 18, um, at the, um, the U.S. Nationals Regatta, we won um, the Cox Four, which is a big event for junior rowers. So we had, you, we you, were really good you rowers. Did. We did. I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. So no, we were, I was a good football player. I was a good rower okay. as well. So I mean, and then this, my freshman year of college, my brother, there was a the first year they had a camp um, for rowing in the U.S. where they brought in a bunch of athletes from all over the country. Now, I couldn't participate. I was too old. But my, my brother, who's Ricardo, who's uh, a year and a half younger than I am, um, was invited to the camp. He ended up stroking the boat, and they won a silver medal at the world championship. So, wow. um, so we rode really well. I mean, we had, you know, Rowan said we had pedigree, and that we, you know, we rode well, and and so I had reasonable expectations that um, it wasn't out of the realm. Yeah, and, um, and Philly all. has, I mean, that like super awesome. Well, like, and back then, particularly, they that's where people went to train. You right. know, so. Um, so I get to Philadelphia, and um, I joined my club, Penny C, which I'm still a member of, and um, and there that was where people went who wanted to be developed into international caliber rowers. And um, which boathouse is that? It's like Penny C. So it's on Boathouse Row. Um, it's next to the University of Pennsylvania, and then okay. the next boathouse is Vesper. Okay, um, but. Penny C probably, you know, Vesper enjoys a very great reputation and well-deserved, but I think Penny C probably has a little bit more um, history. Um, Vesper did win the eight in uh, 1964 uh, at the Olympics, so it's regarded as, you know, that's a lofty accomplishment for sure. Um, sorry. I'm sorry. I just want to ask one more question. Sure. You know, in this, the football to rowing transition. Yeah. So... 
was your feeling at the time that I'm just not putting enough time into practicing for football or is that more something that you're looking at in hindsight and if it was was you know was there a feeling of all right man uh, you know I'm gonna this is gonna change when I go to compete in rowing and because I know like the work ethic was was not lacking it sounds like it's Were more that it was throughout well no I was not yeah. rowing throughout at all and um the answer to your question Aaron is I I don't you know, you, you as you as you get a little bit older, um, you make different choices. And you know, when I was a junior in college, it wasn't like I sit there and say, "Well, I'm not going to break up my girlfriend. Um, I'm not going to, you know, quit my fraternity, and I'm not going to stop studying." So I don't know. I'm doing about you know, with like with what I have on my plate, I, you know. But now, so it's after my junior year, and the fraternity is not as important to you. Um, you know, your girlfriend was she. It wasn't she wasn't any less important to me, but um, I definitely had. Um, it's not. I have. Yeah, my my, wife, my, my, no. my my my. You know, in other words, just sort of like my desires changed a little bit, and uh, and quite frankly, I liked rowing more than football. Was um, there a question in your mind about achieving this goal, or was it kind of? Oh, I thought it was. It, a, I, I thought I was buying a lottery ticket for sure. I mean, I didn't think I was going. I didn't think. I thought at the time I probably had a 10, 15% chance of making it. Right. You know what I mean? I don't think I thought it was 100% at all. It's a pretty I mean, good chance, though, right? Like, <laughs> No, no. I knew. Yeah. I mean, I knew that. Uh, you I, knew you were good at it. I knew I was good at it. Right. And, I, and I, you, you know. You had a shot, period. And I, I mean. knew that, that the heart, like, you know. I mean, in rowing, you have to row well. That sounds simple, but it's it's a big thing. You row and, super. And I, and I, I rowed pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and genetics play a lot into that too, like how you're built, right? Like it does. You know, in fact, um, it's it's weird. Like if you have long arms, the likelihood that you're a good rower is is really high. And I didn't know at the time that I had long arms, but I do. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I mean? I knew I had long arms. I didn't know that the relationship between long arms and rowing. I, I didn't even find that out until a couple of years ago. Such a delicate balance between being like being strong and being lean. In well, the, the thing, world, yeah, you know, yeah, that, that was actually my next question. Well, was, I wasn't a particularly lean rower. So what <laughs> did you? Yeah, how yeah, physically? Now. I know. I, I remember in the past you told me you dropped like a massive amount of weight. When I you did. Went from I, you know, playing. when I when I quit when I played football, I was usually around two sixty five. Um, guys are. So much bigger now. That's a big wow. Boy. What did you, um, what, what position did you play? I played in college guard. I didn't play very much. Um, <laughs> you know, and, um, and then when I quit football, I got up to 285 and that's kind of when I, uh, um, one day I was like, I gotta just, this is this a period is, of self loathing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, this has got to change. So what did you, and I, then what was your rowing weight? Well, when I started rowing, so I decided I wanted to, to do this again. I'm a, just, I'm a junior. This is the spring of my junior year. And the first thing I had to do was lose 40 pounds to get to 245, which is ridiculous for a rower. Um, but I did. And at that point, I thought I could hop on the rowing machine and start um, just low-intensity training. And um, the thing you need for row, so as I was saying before, Doug, you need to be a good rower, and then you have to have a huge engine. I mean, rowing is just a huge engine. So it just takes a lot of time to put in the aerobic work that you're going to need to be able to, you know, bust it for six minutes. Yeah, there's a lot of wattage you got to generate for six yeah, minutes. Yeah, for, exactly. And you just and that just comes with time. So what know? was your final like rowing weight? How long did it um, take you to at, make that transition? You know, on the 
interestingly, I, I usually rode at around 218. Mm-hmm. Um, although at the Olympics um, in 88, I had uh, I was down to 212. And that was for a couple of different... One reason was my coach was always telling us we're too big. And uh, <laughs> not, not all of us, just... Uh, one of the guys in, in, in the, the boat and me. And, um, hey, fatty. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were at a four, and we weren't fat. It was just, no. you know. So I was well, two, you, know, you know, you're in a precision thing when you can tell me you were 218, and then for the Olympics, you were 212. I mean, that's when you're, when you're dealing with pounds, when you're above the 200 pound mark, you know that you're finely tuned. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and the reason why I was 212 at the Olympics was um, it, it had been a little bit hot. Um, going into the Olympics, and so when you train that much, it's hard to keep your weight. Where was and, where yeah. were the eighty eight in Olympics? Seoul? In, in, in Seoul, Korea. Right. Yeah, I remember that. I think as a kid watching those Olympics, but you're they hurt, all kind you're of hurt me, Doc. They blend together. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> saying. Like, <laughs> I was a kid. I, I am I an adult. Seven right? years old. Yeah, but at seven, the Olympics were a huge deal. Like especially no. back in the day when, like you know. You've recently acquired a used color television, right, right, and right, right. you know <laughs> your your parents. There's like four well, channels, and it's like we're gonna watch the Olympics. So right. were you? I mean, were you hitting the tr- like when you went into training for rowing before even moving to Philadelphia? You know, were you hitting that training with like kind of the same level of intensity and like aggressiveness as you had with football? Um, or lack of aggressiveness. Well, I mean, it, it, the thing about well, my football experience. I'm thinking is, of uh, a story. Sorry, I keep cutting you off, man. No, it's all right. But we all I'm, have ADD. These conversations, they like ebb and flow. Well, <laughs> I'm trying. To, I'm thinking. You know, I'm hearing you say, like, man, you know, I wasn't doing well in football, and like my self esteem was was going down. But I'm also thinking of the story I remember hearing on the desk at Bear about like you lining up against this guy on the line, being like. African-American guy like I'm gonna hit you so hard that I'm gonna knock the jerry curl out of your hair <laughs> yeah. And that is not a uh, it wasn't racist like, in the 80s. All right. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying well, it from like a race thing. What I'm, what I'm saying is I that didn't actually say that that was a story I was telling someone else that <laughs> <laughs> To be clear this is a power and, play and, by and, Raul. And, well, No, I didn't I didn't I don't know if I you know I, I don't think I embellished and said that I had said that but right, I, maybe I, 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 mis- I, I misunderstood but no, there was no what we did do what you're referring to is we would walk up to the line and on the, it's actually interesting now because you see some teams, they talk about, they script their plays. Well, we did that when I was in high school, we would memorize like the first eight or 10 plays. And I guess our team was very good. And uh, we would walk up to the line and we ran the wishbone and it was like butts up in the air, white knuckles and everybody, everything was moving forward. And, um, but on the first, second, third play of the game, we would point to where the ball, because in, in, in football, people always say that the offense has two advantages. They know where the ball's going and they know the snap count. So we'd walk up to the line and we'd tell them the snap count and we'd tell them where the ball's going. So now <laughs> it's like, and then we'd try to smack him as hard as we could, you know, and we'd line up and do it again. If it didn't work after the complaints, <laughs> we'd shut up. And, you know, <laughs> and it started down, we were probably passing. If we didn't pass very well, we probably had to huddle. So, right. um, well, but, but I yeah. think that doesn't sound like a guy who is like down on himself. But that was high school. That was in high school. And then in college, you know, so, you know, you're, that's a, was it just a very different team dynamic? Like, I mean, obviously when you talk about high school football, you like, it sounds like you guys were a super gelled team. You guys liked each other. The way you refer to like your coach talking about you (laughs) sounds like you had good rapport with the coaching staff. Did that just go away when you got to college? 
You know, I, I think um, college football is hard because, um, well, for me it was hard. Um, and it's a much different dynamic. You know, in high school you have a bunch of guys basically almost from the same neighborhood, same background. You have a lot more things in common. In college, you know, your team tends to be from all different, you know, sort of backgrounds and um, and how you fit in and, and that sort of thing. It, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's just different. It's more complicated. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, what I, what I was getting at is I think that maybe for other guys on the team or maybe like the, the starters on the team, maybe it was a much different um, sort of dynamic than it was for me. But um, we're wasting too much time talking uh, about football. I'm sorry, man. Hey, so <laughs> you, you get to Philadelphia. Yeah. And, you know, you've, you've started training. You started to build your engine. Well, you, you know, and, and, and you, were, you started speaking about that. And, and the thing that, you know, it's like anything else. You, know, you start out and you know, it's every day that you're putting in the work so you can push yourself a little harder tomorrow. I mean, obviously, the first day, you know, you sit on the erg for an hour and you pull a score but you just don't have, you know, the depth to be able to, Yeah, you, know, you have to put in the time so you can push yourself more. Were yeah. you guys running concept machines back then? Concept twos, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and back then, you know, like the concept, I mean, uh, concept two was started by the Dreisigacker brothers, and um, it's an unbelievable company. I mean, they, you know, an ERG, I think my dad bought the, the A model concept two probably in the mid seventies. And we had it at our house in new Orleans. And I think that machine then cost like $750 and you know, it now, still cost it's, a thousand bucks. now it's four. Exactly. <laughs> it's 40 years later. It's 40 years later. And that machine costs today, you know, like a, a, a $1, thousand, 1100 bucks. I don't want to like digress too much, but like yeah. some, I, so as functional fitness guys, like we we yeah. program a lot of rowing um, because it's I mean it's good for motor work, really. Sure. Good. And um, I personally have n- never used anything but a Concept Two rower, but I know that there's like you know I watched House of Cards. There's like water rowers, and yeah. there's a bunch. What what is the advantage of anything? I mean, it seems like everybody buys Concept machines. Well, I think Concept Two. Well, first of all, they were. The first ones, okay, right? and um, they you get the most bang for your buck. Because, I mean, it's a fantastic machine um, for a ridiculous price, and then uh, a ridiculously good price. And yeah. then uh, you have other machines that are, I, I actually like a lot now, but they're quite a bit more expensive. So, um, and then I've, I've never actually. Is that are they have, better for rower like rowing specific training like right. it feels more like being on a boat? It does. I mean, I think that if you have like there's a machine called an Ortec which I like a lot, and then there's um, um, there's some other machines that actually uh, simulate a boat a little bit better um, than the Concept Two. And if you have the Concept Two and you buy the sliders, um, what it basically does is the the machines moving back and forth. That's basically what the Ortec does. And um, it takes a little bit of the strain off your lower back, and it actually feels a little bit more like a boat. Uh, but I wrote the concept, too. Um, I mean, a lot of chain without, without the built. sliders. Yeah, I mean, it's, a concept. it's a great, I mean, it's just a great machine. And, you know, you can uh, fill up a boathouse with them and get everybody real quality training efficiently. Yeah. So That's interesting. I mean, I think it's funny to see you, like, like shift domains. Like, when, I mean... You moved to Philadelphia specifically to train for rowing, right? Right. I mean, like, what else were you doing? Oh, um, well, first thing, that's a pretty funny story. We, so we, we, we moved to Philadelphia 
and the first time I'd been there, uh, my brother and I moved there. And my brother, I, I said, I mentioned, had been at Penn AC the year before for that junior team camp. Um, so he was familiar. Actually, it wasn't the year before; it was a few years later. But he, he you know, he knew guys in the boathouse and stuff. So we we moved there, and uh, we literally had gotten to. I mean, I was really nervous. We got to the boathouse. We have we had a boat. We had a boat on our car, and. Uh, so is that two man? The, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a beautiful M. Parker uh, Paris, a German company. It's really the premier um, boat builder in the world. And my dad had bought the boat for my brother and me. And uh, so we bring the boat into the boathouse. And uh, we're sitting there and looking for like a, f- a friendly face or, you know, like people are, who are you guys? You know, some, some guys knew my brother. No one knew me. And uh, and this guy walks into Boathouse. Uh, his name is Bill Lamb, and my brother knew him from a few years before. And he asked him, "Say, hey, Billy, uh, my brother and I are here for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, can we live with you? And, you know, until we find our own place." He didn't have a place to stay at all. We have a place to stay. <laughs> <We've> been, <laughs> in fact, yeah, it was crazy. And uh, so he's like, "Yeah, he had just been burglarized." Um, so he, in fact, his, his, his phone message was, I'm not, if I'm not here answering the phone, I'm probably out walking my two Doberman pinchers, you know? And, uh, and so Billy was like, he thought it was great to have a couple of guys hanging out in his house all day long. So he wanted me burglarized again. And, um, yeah, I moved out seven years. We actually moved twice and I moved out seven years later. Um, so he's actually my youngest child's godfather. He's a nice. Great guy. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, uh, so essentially, you moved to Philadelphia to be a robum. Yeah, right. Like you brought a oh, sweet boat in a car. And then, you know, I, I was, I, I was, I had started an MBA program at Tulane, and um, I had wanted to be a, um, in the financial market. So I actually was on an options service desk, Aaron, in Look New York. Me. Yeah, yeah, it was, and I was an order taker, you know, um, and uh, yeah, so I did that until. Um, was this in, 19, down, in downtown Philly? Yeah, this was, I did that for a little over a year until the crash in 87. And I was making, I think, I think $15,000 a year. And uh, in short order, they eliminated my position. Save <laughs> 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 money. So now I was unemployed. Uh, and after that, uh, rower. And at that point, though, it was really kind of gearing up for the 88 Olympics. Yeah. Was, what was the selection process like to get onto the Olympic team? Well, you know, I, was, I started telling you about, you know, peaks and valleys. So, um, you know, the, the first time I made the national team was 1986 and I made the team in the Cox pair and we weren't, and I wasn't fit enough yet. You know I mean? I, I, I had quit football like a little over two years beforehand and um, I made the team again. I, I made things I rode pretty well. And um, and we won the trials race, and we went, and I mean, we were like ninth out of eleven boats or twelve boats in the world, and it, it was um, my I mean, my expectations weren't great, but it was definitely kind of embarrassing. And uh, what is a cox pair? Uh, it's 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 a boat that barely exists anymore. Is um, it three guys in a boat, two guys that's rowing, correct. one guy, is one guy steering? One? Yeah. Okay. And then. Um, you know, but it, it definitely gave me. I mean, I was excited to be on the squad. I was excited to really be sort of in on the path to make the Olympic team. And um, you know, anything you can do to better your, uh, you know, your, your standing. And you're you know, there's a bunch of guys who are trying out, and you just you know, the, the one thing that's important is to have other guys who are trying out for the team have confidence in you. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So I was definitely um, improving a little bit. And uh, and then in 87, uh, there was a big – and so in 86, back to 86, our, my club, Penny C, won the the straight four, the Cockless four, at the uh, World Championships. So they had four really talented guys in the boathouse. And then in 87, there was a – uh, the, for the Cox Four, they had a huge camp um, in at my club at, at Penn AC, and I ended up being uh, selected for that boat. And we went to Lucerne, and, uh, which is a big regatta every year before the World Championships in Switzerland. And we got uh, back then there were two um, regattas that ran concurrently, and um, we won two bronze medals there, uh, which is really nice achievement and so we were selected as the u.s uh cox four and we went back to philadelphia we had six weeks until the world and we really thought we'd improved and we got to the world and we had um some equipment issues and had a, just a disastrous result so we went from being the first boat selected for the squad in 87 to um eliminated very early at the world championship regatta and really slid down the depth chart uh for the guys who were being um sort of identified to be like the core of the Olympic team in 88. So um, really, it was like it took a huge step from the summer of 87 until the fall of 87, just took a huge step backwards. You guys thought you were peaking, and and then it just... brutal. I mean, it was terrible. And uh, so this Dave Krumpetich, who I was rowing the pair with at the time, because you train in a two-man boat twice a day, in a two-man boat. and Even if you're in a four-man team, you're still training in a two-man you, boat. You know, you don't break. You you don't like get together to row the four until late spring, early summer. Um, for the rest of the year, you're rowing in a pair. You, you, you back. I mean, that's how we train. That's why, how most teams train. Why, why is that? Well, you develop most boat sensitivity at rowing in a pair, and um, you know, at that point, what ends up happening. So, what ends up happening in rowing is. You know, I said you have. There's two huge factors. You have to row well, and then you have to have a huge engine. Well, by the time you get to the Olympics, most of the guys, Olympic level, most of the guys have a huge engine. Now it gets back to who's rowing well, and so you row the pair because it forces you and your partner to row well. And um, does that mean like row more intuitively? Like obviously it's a team sport. Well, yeah, because you got to be in sync, right? Right, and you know, so it's interesting. I think when you row in a pair. Um, you have a guy who rows and a guy who ro- rows with a guy who rows. You know what I mean? Like in other words, are you, um, in other words, somebody's laying down the rhythm. Somebody's this is uh, without a cock swimming, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, and it'd be the same in a cox boat as well. But nonetheless, you have you have one guy who has to be adaptive to the other guy. He, he adapts himself to uh, or herself to make the boat go, and. Um, but yeah, each guy in the pair really has to feed off the other guy, and um, which, which is considered to be the more skilled rower. The <clears throat> it's kind of like in a in a sniper, you know, you've got a, a gun guy and a spotter, and the spotter right. is typically the more seasoned, the more veteran of well, the two. Well, I would say that in a pair, usually your stroke is the guy who is lay, well is the guy who's laying down the rhythm, and then the bow person follows the stroke. So um, I rode bow. Actually, I rode bow in all the boats I rode, um, which is funny because the bow is uh, usually the smaller guy, and um, I'm not particularly tall for a rower, but I'm um, a little thick for a rower. You're, I mean, you're six 
What? Six three. Yeah, as you seem yeah. you seem tall. I'm I am not yeah. tall. <laughs> so yeah. Anyone taller um, than me is tall. One of the yeah. things you mentioned was instilling confidence in the other rowers, right? Like right. you want people to believe in you. What are the things is it that like that you're gonna put out the effort to make it happen, that you're just not well, like a no, turd of a human I, I, being? I think, you know, rowing it's like you know it's it's anything, Aaron. I mean you have to be in you have to have other people respect and think that you're serious, you know, that you're a, that you're bringing it, you know, and, um, you know, you want, you, you want to be on everybody else's radar, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I'm just saying, just sort of. And that's just an action thing, right? Like showing well, up every day and, and putting out 100% or. Well, you know, Aaron, everybody showed up every day and everybody put out, you know, I'm sure everybody thought they were putting out. Well, I'm sure everybody put out 100. percent And some people's um, best just isn't enough. It, maybe. And um, but you know you want to, you know you want to make sure that other they, they others view you as as you're you're uh, someone who matters. You know, mm-hmm. you, you make a difference. Right. Gotcha. All right. What was so, the process for the selection for the Olympic team? Yeah, that was interesting. So uh, I'm telling you, we went from like we were pretty low on the depth chart. So there was a. Uh, an erg test in um, Philadelphia, and um, you guys just all show up in an auditorium somewhere, and there's a bunch of ergs and <laughs> no, the, um, it, well, it, it, it was at a boathouse. Okay, and what they do is what they did was there's a um, a erg that's not very popular anymore called the Norwegian erg, and this thing was really an interesting machine because the the more you spin it, it gets super light. But it's like rowing. It, when you're rowing on the water, that's the one thing the Conspire 2 doesn't do very well. When you're rowing on the water and the boat's going fast, it is super light. And you got to move super quick to keep that boat super light. What you're basically doing is getting the boat out of the water. And when you get the boat out of the water, it's light and you can just spin it. And once your fitness isn't there, and it's you know it's, it's, it's impossible to do for six minutes, you know, then you have to like bear down and... and and make it happen, yeah. you know, you know, pull. So, so, and the concept too, I mean, the, uh, the Norwegian erg really simulated that well. And, uh, so they had this erg test and I did well enough on the test to get invited, um, to, uh, Luco, Italy. Um, it's about 90 minutes outside of, out of, uh, Rome. And there, there was a, it was in April and, uh, there was a big selection for the U S team there. And actually the guys in my boat, we were the losers in the selection process there. And, and the, the rowing there was not very good. I mean, the, it was windy. It's a big lake. And we were rowing in these old um, uh, Italian boats. And they were hard for us to, to row well. And it was kind of like the whole trip was kind of really tough. And so we're f- and one of the guys in the boat, we're flying back, and one of the guys in the boat didn't want to row. So we have a, in a month, there was going to be the trials for the four and the four had come out of penny the four again from 80 from 86 the penny c4 won a gold medal and then in 87 they won the bronze medal at the world championships so so my club penny c had that boat and then they were boating other boats to race that boat and we were the second boat coming out of italy um there was another boat that was the you know that that was the first team selected from the U.S. that was going to be at the trials as well. So there's all these boats are going to show up at the at the, at the trials, and um, 
anyway, we, we, so we, we went from being the second boat in our boathouse and the second boat in Italy. So really probably ranked third, um, going into the trials to winning it. And, uh, and where were the trials at? They were in uh, Mercer, New Jersey. Okay. Uh, West Windsor, uh, Mercer County Park. I The whole boat <laughs> thing blows my mind. Like, I feel like, I don't know. Like, I, <clears throat> so my dad went to um, St. Andrew's School, uh, East Coast. You know. Delaware? Yeah. And Never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they row there? Yeah, they do. <laughs> and, I, and it's funny to me because, like, I didn't, I wasn't raised that way, right? Like, my dad, right. he got in the oil industry, moved us to New Orleans, we ended up in Texas. So I was raised, you know, like with cows and horses on a ranch. And my dad would talk about, you know, rowing or, and so I went back to his high school reunion and was like, it, it's literally, it's like Dead Poet Society. It's where they film them, you know, they film Dead Poet Society there. You go there and you're like, oh, they have a boathouse. And my dad's from Philadelphia originally. So, you know, going back and doing events in Philadelphia for Go Ruck when I worked there. And having friends that work in the finance sector, you know, like walking down Boathouse Row is—it's impressive. I mean, the boathouses, I mean, these huge old buildings, just full of what I imagine are super expensive craft. I mean, how much does one yeah. of these boats cost to build? Um, well, to build, uh, to buy, um, a, a top of the line eight today costs about sixty grand. I mean, um, for yeah. what is a tiny boat? I mean, it's yeah, like... I mean, yeah, they're really expensive relative to, I think, you know, you look at it, you look at an automobile, and you're like, how can this thing cost as much as that thing? <laughs> it's a lot of craftsmanship, though, yeah, right? They're, like they're it built is by craftsmanship, hand. and they are built by hand. Um, the, you know, um, interestingly, in the last sort of 15 years or so, um, there's been some Chinese companies bought U.S. Uh, Bought boats, not U.S. boats, but bought um, really European builders' boats. Um, there's uh, an Italian builder uh, named Felipe, and um, and then there's Empacker, uh, and they bought these boats and brought them to China and basically copied them, and are mass producing them at a fraction of the cost. Really? Yeah, like that's I interesting. Mean, do you think half that, the cost? Do you yeah. think that that will open up rowing? Oh, it has to, to lower income athletes. Or you know, I don't, you know, it's funny. I I, I did a uh, we were talking, I was talking to Aaron earlier about this really interesting book called boys in the boat. And, um, someone asked a group asked me to speak at this, uh, um, book review in Mamaronet, New York, which is right next to where we live and at the library there. And it was during the Olympics at 16 and, or just before it. And they and they were, um, curious about, you know, um, this book and this gentleman's story to winning a gold medal in rowing in the Olympics. And I actually made the comment that as like his path to the Olympic was incredibly easy compared to now. And because now to, to, to get to that level, I mean, he's a, you know, he was basically, um, you know, worked his way through college. Uh, he could earn enough money in the summers to pay for his college tuition. And that's unheard of. Yeah. I mean, who can do that? You know? And, um, you know, and I've, I've made a comment that, you know, the, not just rowing any sport, the, you know, the Olympic team is a fairly well healed group of, of athletes. Cause it just takes so much, so many resources to, with the exception of maybe basketball or something. It just takes so much to, to so get much there. support. So much support. Oh, you can't basketball. is just not, a professional team though. But yeah, but what I'm saying, yeah, but I mean, Aaron, like, is you're not going to basketball. You need a pair of sneakers and a ball. But even if yeah, it is a professional a team, you're still talking, and you can and yeah. you can do it. Like in rowing, uh, you know, 
even if you could afford the boat, I mean, you have to, sure. you know, rowing, weightlifting, gymnastics, you know, going like, to, you know, going to events and getting, you know, well, you, you've exposure. mentioned traveling to like Italy. Well, and that was all paid for you know, in fairness that we, that was paid for by the, uh, back down something called the men's Olympic rowing committee. Um, and now it, it would be the NRF, which is supporting, uh, mm-hmm. and the national team gets monies from, um, the USOC and stuff like that. So that those trips were, I, I didn't have to pay for those. Well, but you look globally at Olympic sports and like countries tend to excel at things that are cost advantageous for them. You look at like the African countries are uh, stereotypically ru- runners because yep. it's all you need is nothing. Like a lot of those right. guys run barefoot. In soccer, you know, the U.S. like doesn't put a huge emphasis on soccer because they we put more emphasis on like football and things that require more equipment, but a country like Ghana or Ivory Coast or whatever can can dominate the U.S. on the world stage because like all they need is a ball. And I mean, it was in the '90s right. we started refocusing our our monies and hiring out of the U.S. for that, right? Yeah, like, but we still suck at yeah. soccer. You know, it didn't make the world go. Not, not the women, but yeah, but and like, <laughs> but and also things like uh, skiing and biathlon. You know, those weird ski sports. You know, the, the Scandinavian countries just dominate that. We stuff. had a dude sure. come well, up to us. Part of that's cultural, right? Who, who, are the, who are the major powerhouses in, in rowing in, in the world? You know, rowing is a very interesting sport because it has uh, the one of the reasons why the, um, the IOC uh, loves rowing is it has, the, I think, the highest turnover of medals. So, in other words, really? Yeah. Like, it's unbelievable. Now, Sadly, it's the same 20 countries that are competing for them, but that's pretty much the same in all sports. Um, but yeah, I mean, the turnover on the podium in rowing is, a, is, is the highest. But to answer your question specifically, I'd say right now the dominant r- countries in rowing are England, um, Germany, very good as well, and Italy. Um, it's impressive. Australia, uh, small boats in New Zealand. Uh, but there you go. I mean, just list, you know, name yeah, five majors, you know, that, uh, and you wouldn't necessarily, you know what I mean? Like it, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're all pretty much countries of, of, uh, European origin. I mean, but with the skier, I mean, with the, with the rower, the, the erg yeah. being the predominant training mat vessel for, for rowing, it's, it sounds like a gentleman's sport, like a high cost of entry, but really like. All you need is a skier. I mean, as a as a as a rower, right? Well, I mean, just to get started, like to train. I mean, you have to, you know, um, in order to, to, I think, to get, uh, unless you're going to row in in the eight, um, in the eight you can start rowing at St Andrews. Okay. Then you can go row at a university, and then you can go train and, uh, you know, with the with the U.S. national team and and make the eight. Um, you can actually do that out of college. Just go straight to the eight. There's a, that happens. Um, but the eight isn't a boat where you have to have super boat feel. As the boats get smaller, you need more and more uh, boat skill. And um, and to do that, you eventually have to end. You know, you either have to row in a pair, like we were talking about before, or you have to, as a scholar, row in a single. Um, that gives you the ultimate um, boat feel. And and making you more adaptive to rowing with others, and um, so yeah, that's not going to come by rowing a concept two all the time. Right on. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that again, the concept two builds your motor. Now you got to build your skill. 
And you have to go somewhere where you can row with someone who knows what they're doing, which exactly. means joining a that's club. That's the whole point. Exactly. And that's not terribly expensive. And certainly clubs. It's um, geographically specific, though. That it definitely, you know, you got to move from New Orleans to Philadelphia. Well, I mean, I, right. I, it's funny. Brian and I both know a, a girl from our ancient past. Remember Jessica? Mm-hmm. She was a competitive rower on a four-girl team uh, at Tulane yeah. and for, through undergrad. And yeah. I, I didn't even know that was a thing, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. yeah. There was a lot of crew going on at, uh, you know, I went to University of Texas, and there was a ton of crew people there. Like, yeah. And every morning uh, on Town Lake, just right next, you know, there's all the all the teams were out there. Uh, but I always wondered awesome. if they're competitive or recreational, too, you know, like, because I never... I well, never, if you see eight people in a boat together, you know that they're probably not recreational. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. hey guys, you're going to go down to the water. Today? I, I mean, We're it's like a, there's clubs, right? There's still yeah. club teams. That's what I'm saying. Like, are are we really competitive on a national level, or are you just on a doing right, this because right, you're right. an enthusiast? Is that such a th- is that a big thing that people do? Just recreational rowing, like they're into it and they continue that sport on. Have you continued rowing since since that time? Yes, I I, I, I row, and I my you know I have a son as a freshman in college, and. It's going to be a sophomore, and he won't roll with me anymore. Well, you're too slow, or yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'm like, man. I'm like, dude, I'm an Olympic medalist, man. Like, I can't, <laughs> I, I can't believe I'm rolling with you. Like, so, what do you mean? <laughs> we just jumped storyline too. So, like, I at the last we 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 punctuated this, but you saying, well, we just happened to win the trials to go to the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. no, we did. We, well, we won, we won, and we won convincingly. I mean, we had at the uh, Olympics. No, well, oh, we the didn't trial. win the Olympics we, at, the, at the trials. Uh, we we won, and um, and then we they, we were really, really fortunate because the trials were in May, and uh, the Olympics weren't until September. So, you know, one of the rough things about being on the Olympic team is in the U.S. Most a lot of events have trials, and you don't usually have your trials until you know September, August. So you're the, you're on the Olympic team for like six weeks. You know, then the Olympics are over. You know what I'm saying? You yeah. train for four years, you're an Olympic team for six weeks. I was expecting and, to be able to pimp this jacket for a long <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and so we were fortunate because we were we were actually were able to call ourselves the Olympic team for, you know, yeah, three and a half months. It was awesome. <laughs> and so you guys you, you you are on the Olympic team for three and a half months. You go to Seoul yeah. in eighty eight. And like how does that go down? Well, um that was actually um yeah, so we we, we get to Seoul and you know we win our heat, and we're pretty excited. And we knew, okay, again. So so we after the trials, uh, we got to go back to Lucerne. Uh, actually, we went to Henley, uh, oh, which cool. is uh, yeah, it's, it's a f- really famous regatta in Lo- outside London. Is that the most famous regatta in the world? It has to be on the Thames. It's just, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just beautiful. I mean, Henley is. It's it's it, it, it you have to go to believe it exists. You know, it's like this beautiful it's like fake people. It's like the it's like it's that uh, beautiful outdoor British garden party with a regatta going by, like a polo match. And with everyone's, everyone's totally like that. Yeah, everyone's it's, wearing their like boater yeah, hats, and boater hats and jackets. And yeah. stuff. My son just just went um, and rode. He rode at Brown, and they, they, he just got to row in Henley this year, and it's just it's awesome. So um, so we we go to Henley and and we're. We actually we, we in the event that we rode the Stewards Cup. It's uh, it's kind of a shame because there's only three. It, the way Henley is, it's a it's a tournament, and so ideally there's 32 boats, and you row for f- over five days. And if you're lucky enough to go to the finals, you race on Sunday. And uh, but what happened to us was the uh, 
in the Stewart's Cup are the top level events, you only ever have two or three participants because no one wants to row in it because they're going to get creamed, you know. And uh, so only international level crews uh, participate. So, so we got to row twice. We got to row Saturday and Sunday. We won Saturday. We go to the finals on Sunday, and we get way behind. And rowing can be kind of boring as a spectator sport because it's rare to have someone like you know, usually when so you know, you fall behind, the race is over, like you're not coming back. Yeah, there's and no miracle victories. There is no, there's no golden goals. There's no you know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's not happening. So uh but we you know we were we we were accomplished crew and and uh I mean the Brits got off the line so fast and they were very good for sure. And we start coming back and we were I mean we were way back. We we're like it's a six plus minute race and um we were behind probably I'm going to say 12 seconds um, by the midway point in the race, uh, but they had gone out really hard and they were starting to feel it, and we were coming back hard. So we had made back about nine of the seconds, and uh, we we're boat on boat, and they ended up there's a uh, what they call a boom, which is basically floated floated two by fours along the side of the course to take a little bit of the washout. Because uh, there are a bunch of pleasure boats on the other side, it's unbelievable. You got to see it to believe it. Uh, they have <laughs> these just beautiful wooden boats with, you know, cocktail parties on it. The whole thing's nuts. And uh, so anyway, we're coming back through through the Brits, and they end up pushing us over, and we ended up, you know, giving room and hit the boom and took ourselves out of the race with about 35, 40 strokes to go. And I don't know if we would have caught them, but it would have been close. It would it was exciting. Um, and then the, the following week, we were in Lucerne, and everybody shows up in Lucerne, particularly in Olympic year. I mean, it's huge. And so this, so you know that the, that that it's basically the Olympic final, and uh, we came in third there. So we knew for and, and came in third. I mean, it was a bang bang race. East Germany won. Uh, uh, East Germany. East Germany. <laughs> in fact, in fact, you know, my son, my youngest son, the guy who's at Brown. Um, he friended all the guys on the East German national t- on that, in that boat, like on Facebook. He friended them. Yes. Can you believe that? Yeah, it's great, man. That was, that was it's a 21st world. century. It's right. a cop's right. trees yeah. and taste. You, know, you know, that was in his Communism's rebe- not bad anymore. There are friends, Roel. In, in, in his rebellious <laughs> stages, he friended these guys. So. <laughs> I can tell you that none of those guys want Trump to be president <laughs> based on Twitter. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, 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 so. So we come in third there, so we know that we are, you know, have a good shot, get to the Olympics, win our heat. Uh, New Zealand was in our heat, and we beat them pretty easily, so we felt pretty good about that. We get in a semifinal. And, and you know, in, in rowing, the way it works is you have uh, 12 boats in the semifinal, so two, two heats of six. And, and the way you finish in all your other races uh, determines which semifinal you go to. And you always know that one semifinal is going to have four really good crews. And one's going to have, you know, probably three um, or two. And uh, so we were all excited because we got, we drew the easy semifinal and, uh, the, or the easier semifinal, we thought, you know. So we, the semifinal takes off and we're rowing and it's not going particularly well. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we were in third place. And I remember one of the guys in the boat kind of um, – in rowing, you don't normally talk in a race, but 
one of the guys was really frustrated because in the bow seat, I would call the rate up for a sprint. And I got to tell you, I was a hell of a, and when you sprint, you know, you, I mean, we're, we're good enough that usually nothing bad's going to happen, but something bad could happen. And I was a hell of a lot more worried about something bad happening and coming in fourth and missing the final than I was about coming in second. The difference would be if we came in second, we would row in either lanes two or five for the final. By coming in third, we're going to be lanes one or six, which is not great. But um, anyway, uh, so we ended up, you know, I, I, I hold the, I was like, no, we're keeping it here. And we finished third. We qualified for the finals. And on the, the morning of the finals, uh, my roommate was Richard Kennelly. And uh, I remember Richard saying, you know, we could win this thing. We could come in last. Uh, yeah, I, I have no idea. We really didn't know. But we knew we, you know, we, we knew we were good enough, but you don't know. I mean, and he's like, but let's just leave it out there. You know, we've done all we can do. Let's just go race our hardest and leave it on the course and not regret, you know, we were, and then we were fortunate, you know, we, so we get to the finals and, uh, it's actually pretty cool. Uh, that youngest son, again, he, uh, he uploaded, I, I yeah, I'm from New Orleans and, uh, the, the video that I had of the Olympics cause NBC, um, had aired the race, but it was like at two o'clock in the morning and somebody had stayed up and, and pressed record on a VCR, you know, and, uh, had recorded the race. So I had this, you know, DVD, uh, not DVD, uh, VHS tape um, of, of the race. Were you one of those guys that kept a VHS player in the house just so you could watch, like you could relive well, it's 88? Actually, Doug, it's, actually, it's actually worse than that because <laughs> I, you know, I, I left it at my parents' house and, uh, and then Katrina comes and oh, our no. house is under five feet of water for a month and it's, it's lost. So, but... Um, Meg has a, my wife has a friend who works at NBC and he actually went through the archives and found, oh, dude, that's awesome. found the race. And the best part about the race is, Aaron, I never told you this, but, uh, the best part about the race is, um, it's kind of embarrassing, but it's actually really embarrassing. But, um, like the camera's on me and my, I'm in a four man team, right? But the camera's on me and my parents. Like I was <laughs> single, it's terrible, but it's great, you know? And so they had like my mom really stressing out and me rowing and uh, it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so in, so in the finals, uh, we get a really good start. We were actually a bit unfortunate because the wind had, our final got delayed. And that's another thing. So like, I, I like to drink coffee, and so I was drinking coffee, and I was actually really, really worried that I might fail um, a test for caffeine because I had, had, like, I don't know, seven cups of coffee or something, <laughs> you know? And I didn't find out until, like, way after the Olympics that it was all caffeine-free coffee. <laughs> it was all decaf. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I didn't know, you know? I was like, whatever. <laughs> then placebo thing was working. And... Um, so anyway, the, the the race takes off. We get a pretty good start, and East Germany gets a really good start. And we thought the Brits would be there, um, and they certainly were coming on at the end. Uh, and then we made a big push about uh, probably two thirds of the way through the race. Um, and but the, the the I mean the but in rowing terms, the East Germans won pretty comfortably. They won by about two seconds, right. and. Um, and then West Germany was third, which is weird because they were sixth in Lucerne and no one really kind of figured them to be there. And they were in our semifinal. 
and Italy was fifth. So from our semifinal that we thought we had the easy semifinal, we had second, third, and fifth in our semifinal. So, um, yeah, so it wasn't the easy semifinal we thought it was going to be. And, uh, but we had a good result. So. Going back to the the team dynamic, because um, I also want to hear about kind of like after the Olympics, you know, like then what? But and Olympic guys, Village shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, I've heard well, it's very sexually charged. But you know, with the team dynamic, you know, one of the things you mentioned was, hey, we don't, you know, you don't talk very frequently on the boat, right? So, what are you guys doing to communicate? What are you guys doing to build that team cohesiveness and not, you know, avoid? Any type of element of like, man, like this, you know, holding over some kind of like anger or frustration, like this guy right. fucked this thing up in the race or, you know, this guy's not doing this thing right or, you know, even causing during the race, letting that frustration, if it's there, you know, vent out and basically, you know, kill performance. Yeah. I mean, it, it, first of all, in a race, it's, it's really hard to talk because you're going so hard. You just don't have the... Um the breath for the it. The breath to do it. You yeah. know, I mean, it's just usually just a few words. Um, you, I mean, like if you're rowing the erg and you're rowing hard, I mean, you choose not to speak. Mm-hmm. If you can talk and you're on the erg, you're not, you know, you're, you're, not, not, working you're not working hard enough. Yeah, that's right. for sure. And, and racing, obviously, is even more so. Um, as far as, uh, that's a delicate thing, you know, when you're, you're in a crew and, you know, how do you, you know, you have to almost, hopefully, your coach is, 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 and our coach certainly was, is switched on enough that you, there's not a whole lot that you're adding to, you know, if you start coaching other guys in your boat, that's kind of a, that's a bad sign. Right. You know, no one wants to row with someone who's coaching other guys. That's why I have such a hard time finding people to row with me. <laughs> um, but, I can imagine, though, after yeah. so much training time together, you guys just start acting as like a single organism. Well, you know, you know doesn't what? feel like there's... And, and what individual. I used to always try to do is like let's if I wanted um, someone to work on something, and first of all, you know because Rowan Balsey, you do tend to um, well, certainly I tended to, uh, you know, in practice, you know, call moves or things that we're going to focus on, and so I would always focus on things that I was working on that I had to improve with. That's, that's what we're going to work on. Mm-hmm. Or like if maybe the coach was uh, saying to someone, you know, let's say you need to pull higher at the finish, you know, I'd say, you know, I would, I would never sing. I would try not to single someone out. I, I would just say, you know, we're all going to work on this. You know, right. We're yeah. all thinking about pulling hard at the finish. We're all, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think back to, uh, I think you told me you don't remember the story, but you know, when, when Meg, your wife, like, talks about meeting you at this, this like, rowing party in Philadelphia. Yeah, no, you know, she's like, yeah, there's there's Raul, like, you know, tucked in shirt, cowboy hat, sunglasses, yeah, yeah, cowboy right. boots, you know, tending this pig on the spit. And right. Meg's like, that's barbaric. And she's yeah. like, Raul just spits this, you know, spits this dip out and is like, lady, you should have heard it squeal when we <laughs> slit its throat. And it's yeah, like, it wasn't that. I didn't say that. I said... Well, go ahead. Uh, uh, well, no, please. Yeah, yeah, so when I met Meg, it was at a, uh, it's actually a veal roast, Darren, because the first right. year, the first Even year. more barbaric. <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually awesome. The first year we had a pig roast, but there were so many people there, and the pig was so big. Um, you know, I was a little worried about, you know, possible trichinosis or something. So yeah. the second year we did it, we decided to go with veal. Um right. 
we said to go with beef, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> it was beef, young beef. And uh, but yeah, so we 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 my brother and I bought and Billy, uh, my you know Gus's uh, godfather, uh, we chipped in and bought a side of veal. All right. And um, yeah, and then she came over, and at the time she was a vegetarian. Meg was, and she came over. And and it was like it was hot, man. It was like Texas, Louisiana hot, man. It was, and so I'm sitting there with blue jeans on and a cowboy boot and a t-shirt tucked in, and and you know chewing tobacco. And she comes over to tell me how barbaric this whole thing was, and I said, and I said, lady, just to be clear, before we kill this cow, we beat it. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, that's, that's, that's the first she, time. She, and she just man, turned, man. She's like turned around and walked away <laughs> like, who's that jerk? Well, you know? well, the reason I bring that up is like, you know, that if that personality, yeah, putting those types of people into a team together, you know, like that personality isn't necessarily the type of person that is going to be like deferent to other people or, you know, you're talking about a lot of confidence in, hey, you know, this is, this is who I am. Like I know what I'm doing to put those four people together that are high performers, confident individuals. You know, what are you doing to kind of make those personalities gel, make people work? Honestly, I think on the coaching side, zero. I mean, I think it's total. I, we always considered ourselves lucky that group because we were friends mm -hmm. and we rode together. In other words, we felt like a team. Whereas yeah. a lot of crews you're on, you don't feel as much a team. You know, mm -hmm. you're kind of thrown together, and it just ten it tends to be how we were fortunate that we all came out of the same boat club, so we all knew each other really well. And um, and they're great guys. I mean, these guys are they're they're some of my best. Well, they're my best friends today. And uh, so yeah, we were very fortunate that way. Um, but I don't think the coaches when they select the boats, and we were kind of self selected. I mean, uh, we came out of the losers in. Pietro Luco, but um, we all knew each other and we thought, I mean, we had horses in our boat, we knew, and that was for sure. Um, so it was just making it happen. Yeah. You know? And that's actually, that's a great story. Um, so we come back from Pietro Luco and we go out for a row and it, and uh, there's different ways you can rig a four. So we, we rig the boat, we go out for a row and we have what, it, it, you know, it is, I guess conventionally, uh, the standard, which is a port side stroke, starboard side bow, and uh, and I was rowing in the three seat, I think, and we go out and and it was just terrible. I mean, it was really bad, and uh, we go back that night and it's it's still bad, and so and we probably switch some seats around. We go out and, and I mean, switching the leaving the rig alone and just switching where everybody's sitting. And it was terrible, and we got so. I remember we I, I so after the row I, I I spent like back then we had something called the KG model boat, which basically it's like your riggers are it's, they come in a box and you got to put them together. And nowadays it's a lot of stuff's already done for you, but back then it wasn't. What's so a rig? What's a rigger? Oh, so you have the boat, <laughs> you have the boat, and you have this piece of metal that sits uh, on outside the boat, which, which is where your oars go, which which, which you, you have your lock on the end, and then. But you know you can you can rig the boat differently. In other words, you could have the stroke be on a port or the stroke be on a starboard, 
you can have um, alternating, uh, you know, uh, like port starboard, port starboard down the boat. Or but you, you guys are have, not. You guys are rowing one. Right, rowing one, one, one blade. So yeah, so, no so idea. We're rowing sweeps. Yeah, okay. I should have said that earlier. No, it's cool. I, then, I know that most people that are listening are like rowing. Yeah. What? Well, like you guys have two oars and you have to like not hit each this, other. This is the most interesting thing though. though. So you can, the, another way you can rig the boat is something called the bucket rig, which would be like port, starboard, starboard, port, which there are some advantages to that. Um, the disadvantages is hard to get two guys. People aren't used to rowing in buckets very often. So it's weird to follow somebody on your same side. Usually you know, you're, you're leaning out of the boat one way and the guy in front is leaning out the other way. And that's what's conventional. And then all of a sudden you take a guy and you have him leaning the same way as the guy in front of him is leaning. It's a little bit different. And um, so long story short, literally over a three and a half day period, we probably, we changed the lineup every row and we you know, re-rigged the boat probably four times. And each time you re-rigged the boat, it was probably three hours. Because it was because the boat gets it was wider and gets more narrow, so you have to move the locks. It was a real pain in those days, and uh, so I would literally like get off the water at eight o'clock in the morning, rig till eleven, go home, you know, take a nap or something, come back at about four or five o'clock, and row again. And it's terrible, and stay there from you know till nine o'clock at night, re-rigging the boat, show up again, in the, you know, a quarter six in the morning, do it all, do it all again. So this goes on for like three and a half days, and then. In the, on the second row, on the third day, uh, at this point, the boat I was stroking the boat, and Richard uh, was in the bow seat, and it's a bucket rig, so it's starboard, port, port, starboard. And probably two-thirds of the way through the workout, I, I have, so I, I have the, what you call the tow, and I get to steer the boat as well. So we go over in front of this place called the Canoe Club in Philadelphia. They have a dock there, and I pull in, and they're like, what are you doing? And it's like in the middle of practice, and I'm like... These guys were complaining every stroke. It was so frustrating. <laughs> well, I mean, you went bucket rig like, out of frustration anyway, you're, right? You're, everything was so frustrating. And, and now <laughs> the trials were like three and a half weeks away, and we can't, we don't, and we're going backwards, man. Like we know we we don't got a chance. Like this is this is awful, worse than awful. Like you know, and because uh, now you know our chances to make. Oh, and the U.S. had one to eight the year before um, in uh, Copenhagen at the World Championships. So, and that's where we had the disastrous results. So, like, the eight's already selected. Like, they, they're coming off. So, you know, you've just lost all your chances to make the team, and we're going backwards. You know, like, there's a lot of, yeah, it's frustration, and um, there's anxiety, you know. So, we literally pull into the dock, and, and the guy's like, what are you doing? And I, and, I, and, and <laughs> Rich, because Richard's in the basket, he's like, what's going on? I was like, and I, exactly, I said, my it's like let's switch seats. My days of stroking are over. And I'd rode bow a lot. And Richard had always rode in the stern of the boats. Um, he rode at Harvard, and uh, we literally push off the dock. And I mean, after I'm not exaggerating. After five or six strokes, we're like, oh, we're gonna win. Like it was crazy. Like in other words, so the point is, is that, and I tell this to people who row, and I know most of your listeners don't. But the thing that, to me, that's extraordinary about that is it's just such a fine line. It's not just the training. It's not just the guys. And it's, it's, it's you know, where, what seats you're rowing in. Like, the, the right that guy in the right place. The right person. Yeah, it's the whole thing. There's so many moving parts. And just, you know, to yeah. settle, you know, to, to, to by chance, 
get <clears> the right combination, by chance get the right guys, and then have them in the right seats, and then push off the dock, and the, and the boats all of a sudden it's light and fast, and you're like, this is the best. It goes from the worst to the best in is that just due to minutes. different like styles that people have. Well, I, yeah, or? I think you know it. it well, I know it, it's it. It's a lot of different things, but mostly the reason that the boat. Um, well, we changed two things when we when we switched Richard and me, and um, certainly the most important thing was Richard wrote well. The biggest thing is Richard. Richard was doing a better job. Yeah, I mean, Richard was um, just taking the boat lightly, and everybody was able to, to to follow him. And and I think also it helped that by Richard doing that, because I tend to make the boat heavy uh, when I'm stroking, and he kept the boat light. And you you know making the boat heavy is not what you want to do. You, the, the the trick is to keep it light. So you come back from the Olympics, and you've. I mean, you've achieved this like lifelong goal at this right. point, right? Right. How was? How, oh, I was just gonna say, like, how was the like when you guys medaled and you and you won on the podium? Like, how was the the demeanor of you, of the team? Was it like uh, elation, or oh, yeah. or were you like disappointed that you were so close to gold or anything like we that? We were closer to bronze, you know. To be <laughs> <honest>. <laughs> yeah, so, I like that. Uh, no, seriously, <laughs> like you know, we were you know two seconds. <laughs> change i think out behind the the germans but we were probably a second ahead of the east germans and probably another half a second more ahead of the um the the, the brits who are fourth um uh, you know I, I i certainly for you know a brief second you're like dang you know we could have you know what could we have done differently but i you know a lot of steroids. At, at That's the, the only way yeah, to catch the East Germans. They were huge. They were tough. A, a, a friend of mine, or acquaintance of mine, was a, a Olympic skier, and he said multiple times, he's like, "Man, he's like, I'd rather win, I'd rather win bronze than silver because, like, if you're in bronze, you're like, oh man, I'm happy to be on the podium. Whereas with silver, you're like, man, I was so close to gold. Um, he ended up winning gold, so." No problems there. <laughs> Didn't matter. <laughs> no problems yeah. there. But I thought it was just an interesting like take on it, right? Like, who is it? Who's this friend? Who was it? Who is this friend? No, no name dropping. I want to uh, know just because I feel like this is a guy who you skied with instead of me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't feel I mean, like that at all. By cool. Way. I mean, I, I, you know, and I remember um, also like. Did, Really vividly, I remember I, I was talking to uh, Dave Krumpetich, who was a three-seat, and Dave and I had been in that boat in 87 that had a great start of the season and terrible ending, and um, and we were rowing the pair together uh, in 88 and moving the pair nicely together. But I remember at one point, you know, we were actually, it's after a row, and back then what we would do is, man, we were... <laughs> We would go into the shower. I still do this actually. After like a really, you know, like a real workout, I just take walk into the shower with my, you know, my whole kit on because you're just soaked head to toe. Yeah, and just and just it hurts getting and stuff most, off. It's mostly just to rinse all the sweat out of it. So you know, um, so your whole house doesn't smell like you know workout. And uh, That's a good technique. Yeah, seriously. And uh, <laughs> but I remember Dave saying something. And I'm sitting there. I remember like, and I'm like, dude. We're going Olympics, you know, and we're bringing back hardware. Like, you know, uh, um, oh, well, the other thing was that uh, our coach, this is actually pretty great. Um, our coach, our coach is famous, and uh, Ted Nash, he won, uh, 
uh, a gold medal in 1960 and a, and a, a, a bronze medal in, in 64 in the same boat that we rode uh, in the in the four. So um, so Ted um, had a crew cut in uh, in when he won his gold medal in '60, and, and, and the picture of him he had so after '87 we were at his, at Ted's house. That's right, you know. And uh, I looked at and Crump is next to me. I looked at this picture, and I'm like, dude. We got it. So well, we're going a little bit soon. We got to have crew cuts, you know. So we actually Jesus. did. Is that why they call it a crew cut? I don't know. I, yeah, that's <laughs> you know, I, I, that's really good. I, I don't, you know. Um, but so then in '87, '88 was really hot. It's pretty funny. We were at this part. So this once I, I told you we have to be. We were on the team for like three and a half months. So like the whole neighborhood knew that we were on the Olympic team. It was really cool. And uh, so these people had the swim pool and they invited us over because it was like a record heat in, in Philadelphia. That's how really it was like a hundred degrees every day, Jesus. and uh, it was really bad. Uh, Nobody has air conditioning back then. Yeah, well, you know what? I didn't have air conditioning. I, I you know, we I, I did have had a fan I'd put in the window and just blow in air and. Um, yeah. So, uh, but uh, we're at this party, and this kid shows up with this flat top, and I'm like, "Dude, like, you know, this is actually really tender." Because he, he's, I was like, "Where'd you get your flat top?" And he said, uh, "Oh, Joe Machete down the street." I didn't even know there's a barber shop there. <laughs> Joe Machete is the Joe name Machete. of the barber I want to cut my yeah, hair. Exactly. Right? So Joe Machete. So I go into the, I go in <laughs> to see to this this uh, barber shop and. Uh, and I introduced myself to Joe Machete. I told him I was on the Olympic team. And uh, I said, <laughs> no, no. I said, I told him, I said, I was in my coach's house. He had a flat top. And I know you cut this kid's hair and gave him, you know, flat top. And, and uh, I, I, want, I, want, I want a flat top. And, you know, so he, you know, it was, it, it was spectacular. So the guy, so he cuts my hair. And uh, but it's it's kind of laying flat. It's not standing up. I mean, you can't imagine that. No, no, because I'm, I don't have any hair. <laughs> I um, can't imagine. But it, but it was like it wouldn't stand. He's like, well, he goes, well, Ralph, you need butch wax. And I'm like, what's butch wax? And he's like, here. And so you kind of guess. This, and Joe was like, I don't know, five foot three, and he was about eighty years old at the time. And he gets like this ladder out and takes this 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 jar of butch wax. And the artwork on the jar was crazy. It was like from nineteen. 45 or something it was this thing was ancient and uh and it was 50 cents and joe says i was like what do i owe you joe i'm expecting him to say three dollars or something you know and he's like it's like ral 50 cents i'm like come on joe this thing's got to be 40 <laughs> years old like what do i owe you talk about your money and he's like ral the can says 40 or 50 cents it's 50 cents he looks at me like you're an idiot you know and i was just like this guy was awesome that, yeah, that's so, awesome. And man. then, and then I, I go. So this is really great. So I go back a month later because now we're leaving for the Olympics. I have to get tightened up. And uh, he cuts my hair. And at the end, I go to. I was like, "What do I owe you, Joe?" And he's like, "Ralph, this one's on me." He goes, "Let me show you something." And he like kind of gets on his knees and pulls out like this this uh, very yellowed um, newspaper. You know, it has a picture of John Kelly, of Jack Kelly, before he goes to the Olympics. And, uh, and it's signed, and it says, it says, Joe, thanks for the haircut, Jack. Wow. And um, so Jack Kelly's, Grace Kelly's brother, who's a very famous, um, he's a, 
was Olympian. He, a, he was a boxer, uh, right? No, he was a rower. Oh, he was a rower. rower. Oh, wow. And uh, there's a picture of him in, in, this, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, you know, and it was just... Well, I got to win now. Yeah, right? I, I mean, yeah. In fact, I, I told his son, JB, that story uh, many years later, and JB was just really... Because sh- Jack died, I'm going to say, in probably... Uh, mid 80s he had just passed probably, probably maybe 85 or something uh, just before I arrived in Philadelphia and uh, yeah so and then we were skiing together JB and I um, probably around 2005 or so and I told him that story and JB was he was choked up it was pretty cool oh yeah that's awesome man yeah did you grace the oh. him with the autographed newspaper no I didn't have, <laughs> my picture wasn't in the paper right. <laughs> <laughs> well so you come back from the Olympics and then I mean, was it this sense of kind of well, you you know, know, going from this high elation to now what? Yeah, no. I mean, not so much because – and I could see that, hap- that could happen. But for me, I had I, – I, I was in school, so I had mm-hmm. another year of graduate school to do. Right. So I moved back to New Orleans. You went back 20, to Tulane? Yeah, I was 25. How I, many weeks did you wear the medal around class? I you actually – you know, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny because I, I didn't wear that medal more than – I bet you collectively I wore that medal for less than an hour. Really? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like right afterwards, took a bunch of pictures and then kind of took it off. And because I always tease, again, I always tease Gus, you know, when he's at a regatta with the medal, he's wearing it like, you know, about 15 minutes later. I was like, there you go. It's official. It's like, what's that? It's like, you've worn that more than I've worn my own looking medal. You know? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but no, I mean, it's special, but, you know, no, I didn't wear it around a lot. So how did you get into then the trading industry? Because I know, yeah, you know so, after school. Um, yeah, so you know, I was talking before about how, you know, peaks and valleys. And, um, you know, you, you, again, uh, you know, I, I was a really good high school football player, terrible college football player. Um, go to Philadelphia, kind of have quick success rowing. Uh, then 87, go to the, the world champions and just like complete disaster. And then, you know, fortunate have to have a good result in the Olympics. And uh, go back to school for a year. Come back. Um, tried my my my. Uh, I uh, applied for. I wanted to work in the financial industry, but at that point, Philadelphia wasn't much of a financial industry, and I certainly didn't know the right people or spend enough time networking. Um, and I ended up becoming a stockbroker at Kidder Peabody, um, and absolutely hated it. And. Uh, so I stopped doing that after about nine months or so. And I went to, uh, and it also coincided with the 92 Olympics, which I did not make the team. And um, and then it was time to, you know, to, to really, you know, at that point, um, you know, I'm 29. And I think if it had happened today, I'd have kept on rowing, but um, just because more people row to older ages now than when I rode. Why was some guys did, but that was pretty rare. Now a lot of guys do. And um, but it was time to go to work and start. You know, were um, you still in Philly then? Yeah. Okay. And uh, and I had uh, I had met my I was dating my wife now. And um, you barbarian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I went. I, I, I took a job with a small company, <clears throat> and I liked it, uh, but I didn't think that it would be. I think I thought it would take too long. I wasn't sure I'd ever be successful at it, mm-hmm. and um, 
and I was looking for something different. And Jack Rusher, a good friend of ours, um, uh, had start had, had rode with me. He's about four years younger than me. Um, and after Jack did make the Olympic team, um, he moved to Chicago and started trading. And he invited me to come visit him out in Chicago. And I found subsequently found out the reason, the real reason, he invited me to come visit with him was because he had just been promoted to trader from clerk. But he needed a clerk to take his place. So they invite me out to, uh, and I so I meet Art and I meet Jack. These are people that Aaron knows, or I, he, I mean, I, I knew Jack. I, I meet Art, and they offered me a job, and I wasn't sure I was going to take it. And Art called me every night for a month, telling me he thought I'd be good at this, I should do this, blah blah blah. And it was kind of a exciting young company. And um, which company was this? It doesn't exist now. It was called Apollo then, and then it be, they had to change the name, and they changed it to Helios, and then it was purchased by Bear Stearns. And how was it going on the trading floor as a clerk, as a twenty-nine-year-old? Yeah, because, you I know, mean, that's I think a great question. The, the trading floor doesn't exist anymore. But it does this is the Chicago um, Mercantile, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the a lot of young people on the floor, period. But you know, it's kind of like. You spend maybe a year or so clerking, and if you don't progress up, like, I mean, there were guys that were professional clerks, right. like the, you know, working for the clearing houses. Yeah, they're right. like the out trade clerks, or right. you know, like the fifty year old like super clerk expert guys. But really, for the most part, it was kind of like was a terrible clerk. Can we you, clarify <laughs> for for those of us who do not have experience in the financial world? My, so my experience with finances is pretty much what everybody else's is. Is like occasionally on CNN or MSNBC as scrolling through channels, I see a bunch of like frenetic dudes in like, yeah, like guys, various states guys of disarray. in the jackets yeah. yelling at each Yelling know, trading, everything trading I know. Places, yeah. Yeah, right? exactly. And waving papers. Yeah. Mortimer. And who well, is a clerk? Yeah. And who is a trader? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> like, right. So the clerk is basically support, right? I mean, and the traders are the, the guys that you different, see. Different exchanges are, have different is, like, and, you know, Mar- demarcations for like and is a clerk, clerk used as a uh, a runner on, an onboarding to become a trader yes well yeah. I mean what Aaron's alluding to is some of the clerks sorry what Aaron's alluding sorry. to is some of the clerks are um, career clerks um, is that like a guy majority, that didn't get brought up to the majors like wanted to be a trader or no he's, people, he's he's basically the, the equivalent of a bookkeeper does he get you his know? beak wet on trades? Like, does the does the trader give like morsels to the? Uh, clerk? No, no, no. I think like he's 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 more of a in, like a back office type person, and he's being paid a salary. He, yeah, yeah, he's also doing more like more complex clerking tasks than most of the other clerks on the floor. You know, it's like the right. older one is. Yeah, know. like the, when yeah. there's like a real like like a, a a really hard problem to solve, or like something's like totally fucked up. Can we hypothetically? You know, generate one of these problems so I understand more what he's doing. Well, let's just say that there's confusion about what actually traded. Okay. You know, and so we have what out trade. Aaron thinks I traded frozen oysters concentrate. But maybe I <laughs> traded maybe I traded with Doug, but I wrote Aaron's badge down and you know, and you come in in the morning, you're trying to find, you're trying to match this. I'm trying to match this trade with Aaron, and it's not there. It's and also you're very coming time sensitive. Me, and you're coming in to match a trade with me that's not there, and he's the one who's cutting through all the. Uh, Got it. You yeah, know, but you, people, you can't have like a new guy do that, right? He's yeah, gotta, like, but he has to know the he's players. Got, he's he's got to have relationships with yeah. like the other the other. This doesn't trade, exist. But, like, but is that? But, I mean, anyway. but do people come and start a clerkship? With the intent on like yeah, remaining 90, a clerk? 95% of the people that go to become a clerk are doing it because they want to be a trader. But there are people and that so, are like, 
like you're never going to make it as a trader, but we love you as a clerk kind of thing? Or do uh, the people that are I like, think very few. I think most of the people like either get fired or you leave, right? Like, I would you know, say that this kinda, type of clerk that Aaron's talking about probably didn't start, probably started off in the back office of a clearing firm and then they moved him down to the floor to handle the outtrace. Right. So he's, okay. he's got a back it. office background and he comes down to the floor as an out trace. And why? But, but most of the clerks there will start out train, as a clerk a on the floor. No, no, I love tangents. No, it's great because like I think a lot of the time we bring in subject matter experts to start talking about things that they know really well and you and Aaron both have like a lot of intimate knowledge in this field. But like Brian and I are spectators at best. Well, and also that's like ultra interesting to me because like that is like like Chicago Trading at that time on the floor is like what people's conception of like pit trading that is. That was the right? peak, man. Like that the was, wild, that was the, the wild the west. Place to be. I, that, had, that had to be the peak uh, then. Right? Yeah. I mean, but I think, you know. Just, and it doesn't exist now because we've digitized everything, right? Yeah. I mean, well, well yeah, not just yeah. that. I mean, there's also less trading going on now. Yeah. So I think you look back at that time and there wasn't a. There wasn't like a graduate school program to become a floor trader, right? Or, you know, it wasn't like uh, going to become an investment banker. There wasn't kind of like a, you know, for you guys like Doug and Brian, there wasn't any type of the training. If you wanted to go become a floor trader, you went and became a clerk, uh, you know, to kind of like cut your teeth. And that was the that was the way up. And I think for most people, either, you know, after a year, you know, or maybe two years at the most, it was you were either probably fired because you know you weren't going to become a clerk, you weren't going to become a trader, or you weren't very good at even being a clerk, or you know you kind of just got the message right from from the firm. And and most of these guys are young guys. That's one of the reasons I asked Raul. Is like almost everyone was there out of either high school or college. You know, it's like sure. the first thing you do. This is what you're going to do. Is like almost you know my dad used to say like this is your grad school, and but Aaron, I, I mean, it, we we were so there's different, there was different kinds of floor trading back then, and certainly in the futures pit, um, you had you know much of maybe high school, um, grad, but for the in the derivatives, uh, the option in, in, stuff, in the option stuff, it, it, like, it was more college graduates. Yeah, but even so, like, I, but you're I think, right. You know, I was, coming I was, as like a 29 year old clerk, like you're you were probably older than a bunch of the younger traders. Absolutely, in the pit, and right? I, I and I and I looked old too. You know, yeah. like. Um, I, I get told I, get told I, I don't I, I look younger than my age now, but back then I looked older. I, I, I was I was a twenty nine, but I looked like you know. I mean, how did that feel? Like, was that like a big ego type hit, or you know, was that well, like kind a lot, of a, at that a point? I had, a lot, I had a lot of self confidence, Aaron. So I, I, goddamn silver medalist. You know, I did. You know, but <laughs> I, I definitely remember one point somebody said to you know, Art, you got your your dad to come clerk for you. You know, <laughs> right. And I'll never forget that. You know. But did he have a silver medal? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, um, he's been busy. But anyway, so back to how you asked me about, you know, my career in, in trading. So I only clerked at the Merck for about two months, and uh, they asked me if I would go to London, mm-hmm. and because David Nelly had just gone to London, and uh, I didn't even know that he got. He must have left just before. I started because I started in August, like August 11th, I think it was, and I moved to London. I think it was October 23rd. All right, and this was to move to London to become a trader, the, the clerk. The clerk. And then, right. and and but to get me on a badge right away so I could like save David's spot when he went to lunch. 
you know, <laughs> seriously. The important so, work. Yeah, so I, you know, and um, and then I only clerked for, you know, so I, I, I literally got in the pit in, I mean, it was fast, so probably within a month. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that's a super fast I know, progression. Yeah, it was super fast. I mean, I, I literally started in August and I was trading by November. Wow. Um, and, I mean, do you think that your background in athletics was like a huge bonus for you going into the pit environment? I mean, what was that like for you? You know, when you got to the pit, was it like overwhelming or were you so confident that it was like, man, I got this? Well, I was scared, you know. You know, you're, you're scared because you have to learn a new language, mm-hmm. you know. And and um, I wasn't really properly trained. Uh, you know, subsequent to that, we had like a more formalized trading uh, or uh, education process for mm-hmm. traders. Um, but Dave, I mean, there the day started so early. I mean, you had to get, you know, save your spot at six o'clock in the morning. And that's the other reason I became, you know, got on a bash is to go to, to get to exchange really the same <laughs> David spot for him. And what, so I literally would like sit in the pit and save David's spot. You're talking about basically like the doors of the exchange open. Yes. You got to get into the specific yeah, yeah. I think, pit I think the doors probably, uh, like, I, I'd get up at, you know, five and I, I, was, I had to be at the exchange at six o'clock when they opened the, you know, the turnstile. So you could stand go, in the pit. So I could stand so in the Dave pit. And there. actually, this is London, so it was civilized. You, know, you could get to the pit, you could throw your car down, um, and then you could go have breakfast and hang out for three hours until the right. market actually opened. I do remember you telling some kind of uncivilized stories from the London pits. The, but, those pits uh, were, that, that was pretty much fun all the time. It, yeah. was, it was really good. Um, British guys are basically like in a state of physical riot at all at any moment, like yeah. any time I hang out with anybody from England, I'm like, eh, yeah, well, we're very polite, and oh, dude, now we're escalating to physical violence. Well, back oh. then, it seems like trading was an, a contact sport, you know, like you it was definitely um, a little bit physical, uh, but mostly the reason. I mean, a lot of the traders were bigger guys, but that was mostly because it was kind of easier to spot the bigger guys in the pit, so it's easier to get a, you know, I mean. Back then, trading was kind of a little bit. Uh, it was a little bit broken, you know. I mean, you'd sit there and you make a market, and and then something would trade, and everybody the, the it's like a feeding frenzy, <laughs> and it's like all you know, everybody's trying to get on the, the ticket, uh, you know. So you have, um, yeah. So so is it clerks' jobs? Like I'm just trying to paint a picture for myself. Like is it like there's traders on the floor and there's clerks on the floor? Mm-hmm. And are, is a clerk's job just writing down like late, what you're shouting? Yeah, no, but basically for us, what the clerk was, so you had the, you have the traders in the pit, and yes. then the clerks are around the outside of the pit, and then you have your computer system in a booth nearby, and so a, the trader's handing trading cards, the, the the transactions he's done to the clerk who's going to go enter them into the system, and then you know additionally I might. So when Aaron's clerking for me, uh, I might be uh, asking him. Like if you were in London, if you would have been clerking for me, I would have been said, you know, um, you know, tell Jack who was trading in the Italian. I, I was playing trading the Bund options or the German, so options on the ten-year uh, German bond, uh, and Jack was trading options on the Italian ten-year. But I wanted to relay what whatever was happening in my pit was going to be a precursor to what was happening in his pit. So in other words, the volatility was off in my pit, 
volatility, volatility means the price of options. So options yeah. aren't stagnant. I mean, sometimes um, you have greater expectations that things will be volatile in the future, so options are more expensive, and other times it's going to be more stagnant and, and vols cheaper is coming in. And either way, you want to let guys on your team know as soon as possible um, so they can kind of get in front of it in their pit. You don't want them to, you know, if somebody comes in here and hammers volatility in the bun pit, the last thing is you want is Will in the BTPs or Jack in, in what was the name of that Italian product? I don't even remember. I don't remember. Um, that the, You don't want them to be buying it if I'm telling them it's coming off. And I'm telling them it's coming off. It's like pretty much, you know, you know, if you're short it, get out of the way. Maybe offer some. If you're long it, you know, don't buy more. Maybe dump what you have. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you were in the bun pit. All I, all I gather from this is that fin- the world of finance is essentially gambling. Nah, I don't think so. I, 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 I love so. that everyone that is a gambler with a system <laughs> says it's not gambling either. And everyone who's in the finance was like, no, no, I don't no, think so. I mean, you're, you're functioning in the pit is essentially like an, an inventory manager, right? So well, I think that's interesting, you know, because you, when you start, first started talking, about, I haven't thought about this in a while, Aaron, but when you first started talking about Chicago and, and, and then Dougie said, you know, I made the, 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 you're asking why doesn't this exist anymore? And basically back then, the difference is that back then you had a bunch of really individuals or in individuals or small trading companies that really housed the risk, the, you know, the, the, the risk for the market. And then for a lot of different reasons, the biggest of which is speed, um, that doesn't exist anymore. So we actually ended up with a, we have a market today that is going, what, you know, well, we can talk about that, but no, it's I, interesting I'm, that they, they used to have a bunch of individuals who housed yeah. the risk and then it's being housed today. Then it started being housed by the banks, but now the banks aren't there anymore. And you've created a market that you haven't really noticed it, but when, um, yeah, as interest rates start to rise now, and the market will start becoming more volatile as a result. Oh, there was an article in the journal the other gonna day. You're going to see much wider volatility because they're, they're well, where is the risk now? Like, I, I guess this, did the well, risk go away or it's no, a few, it's not, it's, it's so a few, I think I think you guys are talking about two different things. I think, I'm just curious. I don't so, know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, what Raul was saying is like yep. when he's talking about risk, he's talking about think about you as like a a pension fund manager or something, right? Like you have. You have exposure to positions that you're invested in. Understood. And essentially, you are going to, at the time, you were going to pit traders, whether it was like in futures, futures or options, these derivative products. And basically, it was like, hey, I'm going to pay you uh, like some type of price to take some of this, like remove risk from my portfolio. Right. And but that's I'm, diversification, and, though, right? Like, our, right. Well, yeah. you got, when, you do, when he diversifies his risk, he's, he's laying it off to someone else. The question is, where does it go and how does that, how does that, uh, I mean, I guess think, think I'm not this, looking at think risk of as a traders quantif- is almost like a bunch of small independent insurance companies. Yes. Which right? I see that. Like, but I risk get, is quantifiable in their world. Right? No, like, I, I totally not, get that. I'm like, like a, I'm saying, oh, well, like risk isn't like a quantifiable thing, but I get that risk is. You're used is. to thinking it from like a risk assessment from a military standpoint. No, I get that risk is, I mean, I guess well, this is almost death, a commodity. Okay. <laughs> <So> <laughs> this is just like, you know, your bank accounts going to look different at the end of the day. I just so, feel yeah, like, yeah. I feel like, uh, you know, in a weird way that I can't articulate, like I don't follow finance markets or whatever else, but the way that people are investing and um, handling trading, I air quote, 
on that for anyone listening, <laughs> um, is is very different now than the idea of like trading spaces. You know, trading places. Trading yeah, places. trading places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah trading well, places. Trading places, yeah. Tra- trading places is a good example. But the, the, the I, I think the trading places, it, it's a futures. They're trading a futures product. Okay, so basically that thing can go. You know, like it can it can go up or down. Um, it's different than um, than the, the options on that product. In other words, like. It, when things are uh, slow in the futures market, things are incredibly slow in the options market. When things are crazy in the futures market, the option market is like the futures market on steroids. Like it's so it's going to be a lot more. It's a magnification crazy. of whatever. It's well, it's doing. a derivative of the futures, you know. And uh, but it's it's basically you're trading the risk on the future. So if the futures go really volatile, then the options the the the, the it's the premium on that amount of ri- on that volatility is going to be. It's but when I hear more. this, I hear gambling. <laughs> like all well, of you guys are like, well, it's fair enough. You yeah. know? It's educated. You guys are making educated guesses about the future, but like it's and it's it's certainly not based on insider tips. Like well, you guys are guessing. It's, it's right? better than gambling though, because you know it's when you gamble. Like if you, it's a, you know you, like I never you know placed a wager in a in a casino. Like ten, because why? Number one, I don't know what I'm doing, and number two is the game is slanted towards the casino, and here, you know, I was a market maker. I got to make the price. The game is a little bit slanted. You're to the me. house. Right? I'm a little bit the house. I'm a little bit the house. Yeah, I'm not a hundred percent the house, but I am. I have properties like the house. The other thing is that you got to think about the whole idea for the traders, like they're managing this portfolio of risk, right? So is is it gambling if I walk out and say? To some dude on the street, like, hey, I'm going to write an insurance contract for your car. That, like, you're not going to get into an, you know, an accident or something like that. It's the only thing I'm going to do, and that's basically, yeah, that's gambling. I think that's, I'm making a bet that your car is not, not going to get stolen. Car. You're not going to get in an yeah. accident. You know, at what point? How many cars do I have to do that with? Where now it's like you have a portfolio, right? Yeah, I've got a portfolio, and I can use basically statistics to, you know, kind of. I mean, I think assume what's going to happen in the we've future. We've proven with the health we insurance know. market that like a shallow uh, pool is gambling, right? Yeah, I mean, so essentially, you know, the pit trader's job is to is to basically try and manage. Hey, like, where do I have gaps? You know, where do I have exposure to certain events type of happening? Is this the pee um, bucket concept we talked about yesterday, where there's like you have fifty buckets and you got to get a little bit of pee in all of them? I don't. I don't think I was part of that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, so we're talking about marketing. Talk about pee so we're talking about right. marketing. I um, think of streams as <clears throat> urine streams, not as in right. like a and, channel. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think you know the. Investing for ultra dummies. Right. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that is, in my opinion, really similar, at least from like my understanding of especially like the selection, selection assessment process for, you know, like any type of like special operations team is the fact that you have in selection, part of the goal is a physical assessment, but the other part is basically like, how do you react under stress, right? Like we're gonna put you in a stressful yeah. situation. We're gonna put you in like a, you know, with like some type of like time limit and see what happens. Like, do you fall apart? Are you able to make decisions quickly? All that kind of thing. And I think that in the trading pit, it's kind of the same thing, especially what Raul was saying is like, man, like when shit's going bonkers and you're on the fucking wrong end of the market, 
you know, like what, you know, are you able to not just kind of like freeze up and, you know, have things continue to go worse or even worse than that, kind of like pile on to the making more bad decisions. So, you know, like what from your athletic background do you think like helped you? Was it just that, hey, I've got the personality for this? Was it that certain things from athletics or working with teams like brought you into a place where you were able to like manage risk and stay calm? Do you Um, remember the story? Or was it something that you had to develop over time? Um, I feel like the perfect analogy is that bucket, the rigging story you told. Well, well, that's a tough question because there's there's a lot of moving parts, you know, and you know, you start. You know, I thought. You know, I think. You know, you bring a bunch of people down to the trading floor back in those days, and I think you might get a lot of different reactions. You know, I looked at it and I was like, "Man, this is awesome!" You know, like I have a work environment that's a locker room, and um, I thought that was just the best. And then the more I learned about it, it really spoke to me just how balanced the whole thing was about how you learn, you know, you, like you, you, you know, and I, and I had these conversations with Aaron when he first started, I was like, okay, the most, you know, what's the safest position, Aaron? No position. You know, what's the safe position? Aaron would say, you know, long haul. No, the safe position is no position. Okay. And then, but we, we can't, we got to make money here. We can't have no position. So what's the second safest position, you know? And, you know, and eventually you're building a portfolio um, so you're making, so what's going on is you're making, you're sitting there making prices and what you're trying to do is balance the whole thing. Kind of like the same thing as rigging the boat. You're just trying to get the right balance. And so the more I learned about it, the more I liked it, you mm-hmm. know, and I think, so I don't think that as far as, you know, experiences I might've taken from football or rowing that helped me in trading. I don't know about that. Well, it's it's a seemed, character. You know, I, I see a lot of parallels though, because like. The, especially with rowing to trading, like trading strikes me from what Aaron has described to me is that culture is very much a meritocracy, right? Like you're you're working as a clerk. How will you perform? Is how how will you go to the next level? And once you're a trader, like literally, you the numbers speak for themselves, right? Are you are you creating money? Are you making value for whatever company you're doing or or the portfolio that you've built? And it's it's very similar to what you're talking about in rowing. It's like you had ups and downs day to day, and you know, one day we think we're the best, the next day you're the worst, and that's right. definitely like how trading seems to work. You well, have a I great, did love that. profitable day, and the next day you might have a garbage day, but I, you got to work hard to make I it up. I totally loved having a scorecard, not just at the end of the day, every day, all day long having a scorecard. I thought that was awesome. You know, I mean, like, you know, you sit there, and you, as opposed to, you know, if you know you're a salesperson, you're calling somebody, and you're like you hang up the phone. You're like, how did that call go? And you're not gonna know for a long time. We're here, <laughs> man. You know, yeah. you know right away. And Brian, one of the things is the uh, your the portfolio that you're building is not a port. You know, usually most people think about a portfolio as is something that's going to make you money. You're trying to build a portfolio. Every trade that you do, you think you're making money. Yeah. And you're making money visa visa transaction. In other words, you know, what's my market? I'm two bit at three. I'll sell you at two. I, I, now I own them at two. Okay. Now I got to, you know, I just bought an apple for two. Now I got to sell an orange at five, you know, so that, and I'm, and I, and I got the, 
you know, the, the apple orange spread on. I'm walking in. I feel really good about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Until that thing all of a sudden, con- you know, collide. So the whole thing is you're, you're, you know, the best example, and it's one that's probably overused in trading, was that, you know, the, and they told me it's my first day. It's like, man, it's like, imagine the biggest steamroller, you know, you've ever seen in your life coming down the road, and there are a bunch of dimes in front of it, and your job is to go pick them up. <laughs> okay, I got it. Put me in, you know. And, and that's all you're trying to do, and you're just trying to, you know, you know, buy apples, sell oranges, and hopefully you wait long, you're waiting for the guy who wants the other side of that trade. And that's what you're, you know, you, you're, and, you, and you're just, and you're not just trading two fruits, you're trading, you know, hundreds. And, yeah. um, and so you just, you just keep on trading every transaction. You, by virtue of the fact that you stand in the pit, you're the most in touch with volatility. You know, everything's trading in that product, in that pit. You know, it's a problem if you're if something's trading in two places. You know, that's why I was trying to relay the, the, the you know the, the information earlier because there's a, there is a relationship between you know the yeah, it was the BTP was the uh, Italian. Right. So there is a relationship between the BTP, the Bunds, and 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 the Gilt Pit. Gilt, I think it was short term. Anyway, yeah, and, and you're just trying to you know, you're just trying to pass all that information. Um, as yeah. a team, but you're as working team. as a team. Yeah. You know, and it's like, the, it just seems like there's a lot of parallels to me, you know, with the being well, in sync and the ups and downs and, and having And the difference metrics. between being successful and not being successful is your ability to pull into the canoe club and say, my stroking days are over. You right? Know, well, like, that was hey. A, that, that was, a, you know, and, and that, you know, you know, in rowing, you know, that, that, there, there's a lot of people who, you know, uh, think that being the stroke of the crew is the most the, the, the most glamorous seat, you know. So mm-hmm. you're right about that. You know, you're pulling the boats like I'm not stroking this boat anymore. You are, you know. Like it's like saying uh, I'm not the first string quarterback. I'm going to play tight end, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to be better, you know. Well, but I think it takes like a, a mature individual to make that call, right? Well, you know, yeah, but. I mean, sometimes you just do it out of frustration. I think it's funny when you're like, what did you learn from sports or whatever? And like the soft parallels, like, dude, we're all alpha. Like we, I mean, I hate to use that term. It's like beta cuck. Like it's the dumbest thing, right? Like we're all very hard headed people who believe we're right all the time. And you put those dudes in a room and sometimes it doesn't go well. And like there are physical fights and like we argue, we do a lot of cussing at each other. But in general, like the shared experience, et cetera, contributes to what I view as like, a higher order of synergy and thought where you put guys in front of a problem and guys are like, man, I know I'm not as good at this as some other guy, so I'm going to let this other dude flow in. You know, like, mm-hmm. Brian's the well, guy who's... Kind of, well, that's kind of the height of mastery, right? Is, like, you, once you reach the, the top of the summit, you can start to look down and see what your own weaknesses are, like, in a more defined way and have the humility, humility to ratchet it back a little bit, you know, and, like, allow people to take other positions that you need but like it just seems like like Aaron has talked a lot about the banking world and stuff like that and we've there's an enormous amount of parallels between military culture and the investment banking world it seems to me yeah uh, I think more that like on the trading side in, in exactly what I mentioned before in the sense that like my perception you know being on the, the opposite side of that coin is that really so much of it really comes down to like ma- successfully managing stress, right? Yeah. Successfully managing stress and chaos. You know, when when things go sideways, like are you able to, you know, pull yourself out of that situation or at least, 
you know, stop it from getting worse or, you know, oh, for sure. come well, up with a plan, right? Yeah, it's like, well, everybody, everybody's a genius in a bull market and everybody's a great gunfighter when the bullets aren't flying, you know, and it's all theoretical and you're on the range. And the difference between you should okay see me before the buzzer goes. Yeah, the, <laughs> the <laughs> difference between okay and great is when the freaking shit is is going haywire, and that's kind of what he brought up with with the the story. You know, it's like, hey man, this is right before the trials. Like shit's going haywire. Like we have the the mental capacity to make the changes necessary to be successful down the line, and um, sounds like that's that has a strong correlation with uh, trading. You know, it's funny because um, one of the things that you know, people ask me, I think about like, what did I learn from trading? You know, I mean, because, you know, being able to buy apples and sell oranges, you know, I, was, I, I used to think while I was a trader, I was like, what, what can I do after this? You know, it's like, well, I can, you know, go to, go to the football game and scalp tickets. Like, a, you know, <laughs> but they, they, they stuff up people along, so I can't do that anymore. Right. So, right. um, you know, um, it, it, but what are the lessons I learned? And, and, I think the biggest lesson I know, um, I told this to Aaron. What, what, what I was like, the, 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 the one greatest takeaway is how to handle really bad news well. Yeah. You know, that's like the most important thing. Like, this is terrible. Okay. You know, now, Dude, what, do, now what do we do? I remember, you know? I mean, you know, I came into work for Bear Stearns, and at first I was, uh, you know, I was paired up with Juicy, who I think, looking back, I really think got like a fucking a shitty, a shitty shake um, at, at things. But uh, that's, I guess, a story for another day. Um, but then, you know, I was like moved over to, to work with you, and I, I like remember you turning to me and just being like, "Hey, man, I'm really good at taking bad news, but I have to know it right away." Right, and that was. I mean, that was the beginning of our relationship. Like that was the number number one step, you know, like off the off the boat, no pun intended. Right. Um, you know, just sitting next to you and and you know, to the entire time that we that we worked together, like that remained true. As long as there was a problem and it was brought to your attention right away, like you never were you never got upset. It was always like, What do we do to, to fix this? I know there was times when you probably looked looked at me and were like Man, like, how could you be this much of a fucking idiot no. uh, to get to get yourself into this situation? I mean, your names um, were tough too. I mean, you know, your names were less liquid and, and hard. So. Well, but I think, uh, yeah, I don't like. I was really impressed with not only that starting the relationship that way, um, also in you know, I wonder. I keep asking the same question: like, is this from the sports background? But uh, maybe it's just personality. Like, you know, I saw routinely. Mistakes that I made, like you take the heat for them with art or, you know, like basically the, the, the seniors and things that maybe I only had like 10% of the responsibility for a win, like you giving me the credit for. Um, and I t like that really struck me, especially in the tr in the trading world where uh, there are a lot of guys that are like really greedy right. and really just kind of like, you know, would sell their moms for a nickel type of thing. Like to see that kind of like more like selfish selfless leadership was uh you know I, th I think like really left an impression on me um you know the, the, the but, that, that, but that definitely could come from doing something like you just from being from team sports especially something as as 
like having to put the team ahead of yourself. Well, and something like crew where everything is just a, such a finely balanced thing, right? Like you, you're only as good as your weakest person. It's like so cliche to say, but like it puts you in that mental space of elevating like everyone to up to the same level. You best, know? The best people, hands down, the highest proficiency people I've ever worked with are absolutely the people that like went around talking about how they didn't do anything and that like it was 100% their team. Yep. Like, exactly. hey man, these guys are great. And you're like, dude, you are literally the best person I've ever met at this. Oh no, not me, man. Like, no. I'm good because the you guys are good. They're the ones that make me look good, yeah. Yep. So that's awesome. There's not too much of that in trading. <laughs> <laughs> well, all, like as traders, did, like so there's so much ego wrapped up in a lot of this stuff, right? Because you're making these big decisions in, in a time sensitive manner. Like, do guys are they introspective at all? Like, do guys like look? I mean, I, when you get to be your age and like you know, you can look back and be like, hey man, like I can I, my age. You say <laughs> you were at least five years older than I am. So like I'm starting to be more introspective in my life. Everyone thinks I'm right. old around the office. But like for us, like as soft guys, a lot of us sit around and say like, you know, hey man, I was born for this. Like I didn't just like go to selection and work hard and get picked. Like I didn't quit because I knew that this was something that I was made to do. And like traders seem very like, like I don't know a lot of people that want to do that job set, right? Like it's something that they crave. I, were they made to do it or is this like a series of bad choices that lands you in this high stress job? Wow. I, well, I, I wanted to do it. I mean, for sure. And um, I saw myself as um, someone who wanted to take risk and and be rewarded for it, you know. Uh, and I also saw my, you know, my dad. Like I said, my dad's a doctor. I, I, I thought I studied biology. I thought I was going to be a doctor. And I would go and make rounds with my dad, and I found the whole thing so um, slow. And I just, <laughs> I just needed something that. What kind of doctor is your dad? Orthopedic surgeon. Okay. And um, the bro doc, the and, carpenter. And I, yeah, <laughs> and I just wanted something that was that, that I viewed as being more uh, a little faster pace. Yeah, and, and I think don't uh, don't confuse what I'm saying with a sense of like zen like calm because uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> especially no. back in the I'm day calm. when we started sitting next to each other we were on the end of the trading floor next they to moved next <laughs> they, moved, they moved us <laughs> to the very back corner of the trading floor it was like uh, i remember man so like our trading row backed up to basically like the the support guys there was this new tech guy, like classic yeah. tech guy with like a ponytail. And uh, Raul was basically like chewing. Raul, I mean, you had a very, very limited patience for bullshit, I would say. You know, it's like, you know, you were always like, dude, I don't want to trade with a story. You know, like if you got to tell me a story <laughs> about the trade, like, hey man, so guess, you know, like guess what happened? It's like, no, 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 no. I forgot no. about like, that. That's yeah, true. Like, that, like anytime that happens, like it's, I know it's bad news for me, right? And, uh, you know, you had just gotten done like chewing this guy out on the phone and the dude, this tech guy behind us this is turns around. Yeah, and he's like, He's like, man, like you really shouldn't talk to people that way. And Go I just remember yourself. being like, oh Dude, my no. god, yeah. fuck Dude, it. I can't a, believe you just said that to his face. <laughs> like, there'd be a beating. <laughs> yeah, oh, what did you say? Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, like two days later, we were on the other side of the trading floor. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think. But but in that vein, 
you know, one of the things, and I'm, I'm kind of interested to like hear what you guys think as far as like the corollary to the military side. You know, one of the things, I think in that room, like you were one of, if not like the biggest trader in the room. And I remember one of the things like, remember you going on vacation, like not even vacation, but like leaving early on like a Friday. And, you know, most of the, as a younger trader, like I wasn't allowed to trade past a certain size, right? It's like, hey, you, like you cannot buy or sell more than like 100 units of anything at one time. And you left at like lunchtime on a Friday. And you were like, hey, man, like we have a reputation in like the shit that I trade that you're going to be watching as being, you know, like a thousand up. Like I will buy or sell a thousand at like, you know, it, at the price. And when I'm gone, like that doesn't change to, you know, like I tell you that. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> You know, like Aaron's, it's a good Aaron's story. Here, so like, I like the story or no? No, I think it's good. I mean, I mean nothing, nothing bad right, happened, okay. but it was basically. I think at the time you kind of probably saw, you, like maybe the look on my face, like holy shit, man. You know, I can't, like I can't go from like hundred to a thousand, and I just remember us having a talk where you were like, "Dude, don't don't assume you're wrong because the size is getting bigger. Don't assume that the other guy who's like trading bigger size than you." knows more than you or you know like who knows what that guy's motivation is or like what he's laying off or whatever and i think so many guys what which in my opinion i'm curious to hear your take like what the difference between the good traders and like the great traders was the fact that those guys were confident and able to they didn't hit like a ceiling where it's like i'm just with risk right like i'm not comfortable taking more risk than this and not in like a wild way like hey fuck it like i'll you know i'll do anything like in a, um in in a uh what if, oh, like, what if i will <laughs> right? well those guys those guys don't last but i'm saying guys no. who could confidently and competently hey if i can do this for 10 i can do it for ten thousand. uh and not everyone on the desk was able to do that and you were very calm about like hey man like if, if you're if you believe in your process and you you know you have a reason for what you're doing, then be confident and step up your game. Well, I so just so everybody understands what's going on, th- that market was a phone kind of a phone around market, and we were both trading electronically and on the screens. But in fairness, um, there was a brokerage component to it on the phones, and um, so what you know it's kind of esoteric, but. but the the point is is that you you have to you know, when you're in a you're trading in a, a stock uh, the options on a stock and that stock has more traction and you're able to have more liquidity and then you become a bigger part of the flow in that stock then you kind of become the main call in, in that stock and you don't want to lose that so when you ha- when you get to see that much flow of what's going on in the stock. You have better information than not than everybody, but you have better information than 95 percent of the people out there. You know, so because you're creating the most of the market for that. <clears throat> yeah, it, you're getting it, more phone calls. You're getting yeah. more phone calls because people know that you have the appetite, and um, and the hard thing to, to to you know is when you go from trading a hundred. See, when you're trading a hundred up, you're not making the market in this in in the option. But let's say the market on the screen is at the time was. Um, you know, three and seven eighths bid at four, you know, and somebody calls you up. And back then, the names we were trading were like General Motors and GE and Tyco and stuff like that. Um, they were kind of industrial companies. 
which weren't the glamour stocks to trade, but we were making big enough markets that we became the place to trade those stocks, the options on those stocks. So, so the market's three and seven, and some guy calls up at you know two forty-five on a Friday and asks Aaron, "I got five thousand to sell." And the trick is to know, well, the market's not for five. Yeah, I'm I'm three and seven eighths bid for two hundred and fifty of them. You want five thousand? That price is three and a half or three and five eighths, you know, and I'll take them, you know, and so that's what you know that 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 that's the thing that's hard to go from being a hundred up trader to knowing how the trade the guy's about to do how is it was going to affect the market in those options back then, and uh, so. Well, um, but being but able to to, to yeah. confidently handle, but you're that not going to get that phone call when you're trading a hundred up, right? You know what I mean? You only get that phone call because you they know you you'll do five thousand. You know, so sure. So, I mean, for you though, like, what what was it? Do you think that enabled you, or what was it that allowed you, or you know, when did you take that step from being kind of everyone starts as kind of the guy that's going going along with the crowd, right? Right. Um, and what was what what was the transition? Well, I was very lucky, first of all, to trade in the Bun Pit in London. So that was a really dynamic environment where. You know, I started up, started off. I think I, I, I think I did a trade for less than a hundred, and David pulled me aside. It's like, dude, we don't card anything up for less than a, you know, you know, you're a hundred up on any. Anytime you open your mouth, you're a hundred up. It's like, all right, you know, and just as like a reputation type thing. Yeah, you know, and because you know, what you, does that you, mean a hundred up? That means oh, you're selling a I mean, hundred units or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, right. Uh, so I make. So somebody asked me my market, and that the the um, the way that market traded, it was like. It traded like not in, in I guess we traded Deutschmarks, you know. So you were it was Deutschmarks. So you were like so, but it was like numerical. So I, I'm, you know, one ninety eight bid at two hundred, you know, Deutschmarks. Um, well, um, and there's a multi. Just to interrupt real quick, the, yeah. there's a multiplicative effect with derivatives too. So, you know, like one futures contract may represent, you know. Uh, for you know, I don't know for Bunds what I it think is, it was one hundred twenty-five thousand marks, wasn't it? Yeah. So like you know, if you think about it in like U.S. government debt, like you go to the bank and you buy like a hundred dollar savings bond or something like that, you know, let's say that's that's the increment, right? Well, one you know one future is an increment of like ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollars. So you know, if you're if you're hundred up on like a hundred thousand dollar product, it doesn't. T- you don't need that many contracts to like be moving some That's serious 10 million bucks. Yeah, I mean, some serious just, money, okay. right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, but in that market, I feel there, like I'm out of my depth. In now. that market, there you were able to scale it, right? So, in other words, you were able to okay get more comfortable. Um, and and I wasn't trading my own position. Dave and I were we would commingle everything. So, um, you know, he might buy something, I'll sell something else. You know, and and. So we're, and we're trading one book, Aaron, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's one product, you know, it's a massive position. And, um, so I had that experience trading a really big book because you didn't have to manage the risk yourself. Not initially I didn't, you know, then David would like take a month long vacation and I learned a lot about management, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, but, um, do you know how to swim? Cause here's the deep end. Yeah, exactly. And so I had that, you know, it, that that's a huge help, you know. Yeah. And then, yeah. But then you know you. So Aaron and I first started working together, and we were working. You were clerking for us in the uh, S and P five hundred pit, 
right? And no, I didn't work for you guys there. Uh, I did clerk in that pit, you but were not for you somebody guys. else, right? Okay, yeah. all right. Um, so then, you know, that I hated that pit. That 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 was that was like the low spot of my trading career that year. Just because it, of the politics in the pit, or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, just there was, there was one kind of scummy broker that really ran that. We didn't talk about that. Uh, I'm not going <laughs> to name him, but I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying, like, I, I, can I jump to the other punchline? Like, I'm assuming you did not ride the Bear Stearns lawn dart. Oh, you lawn, did lawn, lawn dart. The lawn dart. You were. Oh, yeah, you were there at the end. You were there at the end, dude. When. <laughs> <laughs> oh, peaks and valleys. So yeah. So if you go, if you go to. Um, like on the Wall Street Journal, there was on the cover of the Wall Street. This is back, I mean, this is only eight years, or 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. 10, yeah. And um, the last day of Bear Stearns, um, and it was really, it was tough for me because I had had my best two months of my career by far. I mean, I. I had almost made more money in those two months that I had made in any other year in my career in January and February um, of 08. It was, it was, <coughs> I mean, Vol was just going, I was lucky. I was trading the home builders. Vol was going bid. I had some cool trades on. And um, actually, I'll tell you about when it. When you later. say that, just for a little clear, I don't want to interrupt too much, but basically the housing industry was in collapse. And, and so I was trading the options trading, on the housing stocks. Yeah. And so there was I a, a lot of opportunity. So in as the, an in options trader, the more volatility it is, the more money there is to make. Or lose, yeah. Or lose, yeah. But, but that's you're, where, you're but on that's, But that's where it's side. swinging around a lot. It was only going up, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> volatility was going. It's awesome, you know. And like I said before, I, I didn't really learn. I wasn't schooled sort of conventionally. And Aaron, it's I, I had Excel out all the time, and I just during this period I'm like, okay, what happens? Yeah, you because know, like, I didn't understand what would happen. I didn't understand what infinity meant. You know what I mean? Like, like you, know, you sit there and and, and you learn um, your first day, and you know, we start giving you options classes and stuff. But there's certain sort of things where, you know, how high can vol actually go? You know, and so I started like playing with the model, like you know, because at some point it's a sale, right? And I don't care if the price is going up. At some point, it's a sale because you know the um, you just don't have to hedge it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you know, you sell vol high enough. You know, it's kind of like the you know, it's kind of like this, the, the person who comes in and buys who bids the straddle. You know, the thing's trading you know two hundred, and he bids two hundred for the straddle, and you're like, okay. You know, you think it's going to 400? I don't know well, what that means. None of us, none of us makes sense to me. <laughs> I mean, all can't, all I can can't. think about is the billions, like where, hey, so I, the, the guy with all the money <laughs> bet on something during 9-11, like, and it was good for him. <laughs> uh, actually, I mean, shit, you know, we we traded through that period. Um, I think basically what Raul was saying is like, if someone came to you and was like, hey, I've got this $30,000 car, will you insure its total replacement value, you know, if I give you like $25,000, you'd be like, sure, man. Absolutely. Um, and I'm not going to do, I'm not going to call another insurance company. I and feel like, like the dude that's going to ask get, me for that is about to go drive it into a wall. Well, no, well, but you, you know, it's <laughs> shocking, but, it, but people are trading volatility and the price just keeps on going up and up and up and they are willing to pay a higher price. At a certain point, you're like, wait a second, this guy's actually like, 
Yeah, exactly. Like I, at the most I can lose 5,000 bucks, you know? Um, in this instance, you know, it, it, it's both ways. So, or I could replace it up to $50,000. Yeah, done. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that's the parameters of what he's willing to okay. pay for the insurance. And you're like, you know, but uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. We're off on a, on anyway. a, on a no, I mean, yeah, I have an, but I'm, at curious. Bear, I'm at, so I'm at yeah. Bear Stearns and I'm having like the really, year. really great. Like I'm just thinking that we're moving, right? We're moving to a bigger house. And you're un- <laughs> and, and you're you're unaware that Bear Stearns is currently. Oh no 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 no! I knew that. that <laughs> so the runway is the end of the runway is approaching, and you no, see. No, I it. didn't know Bear Stearns was going out of business. Well, that's just the sure. whole thing was shaky, right? But I knew that the entire. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, the Fed would go in and loan. You know, uh, GE or B of A or you know, Goldman money. I had no idea um, of TARP or that, any of that stuff so, was coming. And, but, and with all that being said, like before we get there, like Bear Stearns ran out of runway before the Fed came in and bolstered everybody yes. else, right? In fact, Bear Stearns went out of business and then I'm going to, over that weekend, and I'm going to say Tuesday or something, or even Monday, the Fed came out and allowed... Uh, investment banks to borrow from the Fed. And, they, and up until then, it wasn't allowed. So, I mean, had they been able to do that, then Bear could have... They basically turned investment banks into commercial banks over overnight by, by a wave of the wand. And... Um, and I mean, I'm assuming... No, like, and, then, and, is, then, and then you had access to... Look, the, the problem with... You know, Aaron and I started talking about this, you know, this morning, you know, talking about post sort of trading and like the... the things you have to worry about as a trader in a business as opposed to, you know, being in a real business, um, in a, in a tangible business where you have to worry about actually getting paid and stuff like that. Um, so your concerns is running a business or they, they change as the, the nature of the business changes. And, um, and I forgot what I was going to say. You're talking um, about Bear Stearns. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. Well, bear, in, in the banking industry, is if you ha- don't have the ability to borrow money, then you're out of business. Yeah. If people lose confidence in you and they pull all their money out and you have no other place to go for money to replace that money, you're out of business. And um, that's what happened to, you know, any financial like overnight issues. lending kind of thing. Yeah, like. yeah. You know, so when, when, when your trading partners are questioning your solvency, then you're, as a bank, you're out of business. And, any business that, that where you're, the people who you transact with, if they're not willing to transact with you, or same thing, it'd be no different than the banks not willing to lend you any more money. Then you're out of business. You just can't. You don't have unless you have it. Kind of blows, no else. liquidity. It kind of blows right. my mind that like, I mean, I know this is like this is a tangent for sure, but I mean, like the idea that 48 hours separated, you know, like with the Fed coming in and rescuing Goldman Sachs and everything, and and. Bear Stearns just basically I don't know that they would have done it without Bear going under. No, they, went, I mean, they, they did it because Bear Stearns went under. And in other words, there was there had been some talk. Um, Bear was allowed to be the canary in the mine. Kind yeah, of that somebody had to fail before the Fed, before the government would change its policy. And then I had heard that when, um, what was Mayor Brothers' firm? The, um, Solomon? No, after that. Oh, uh, long-term capital. Long-term. When long-term went bankrupt, there was a consortium of uh, investment banks that um, got together on a deal to um, rescue them. Mm-hmm. And Bear actually cleared them, and Bear refused to join the group. And they're like, 
but I, I, I whatever, for, for whatever reason, and that just ticked a lot of guys off, and that's one of the reasons I had heard that um, that they oh, right. because that you came back. That these the guys rescue so yeah. when so, you so, needed it. Yeah, so Ha-ha. the boys' club was like, Although, you know, you know I've heard a lot of conspiracy around. theories and concerns. Well, like no, that's that. that that was definitely a huge part of that book. House of Cards was like, yeah. hey man, you guys haven't, you guys weren't a part of the club, so yeah, yeah, you go down with the ship. Yeah. Well, that that also, I mean, the long term capital management thing, going back to kind of like risk management and. Uh, Again, kind of like what's separating, I think, the really successful guys from kind of like the crowd. I wasn't there for this, but, uh, you know, long-term capital management blew up. You know, it was basically like the first giant hedge fund blew up. Right. And, uh, you know, those guys had been buying options in the S&P 500, like, you know, to the point where they had just made everyone like try to cry uncle, right? And when those guys blew up and they came to unwind it, I remember you telling me a story about, you know, the guy who was probably the biggest trader in the pit at that time, Edgy. Yeah. You know, that was basically actually, like, that's Ned Stabler's story, actually. What'd you say? That was Ned Stabler's story. Right. But go ahead. But basically how, you know, those guys came to unwind the trade and how most people in the crowd were just ready to cry uncle, like, let yeah. me take my losses. And Edgy was like, back the fuck up, man. Like, these guys. Well, no, no. It was, it was, it was the other way. You know? So they were burying the pit with Vol. All right. You're right. And they come in. They're and all it. of a sudden, you know. And they made the mistake of going through the, the same broker. Like, you never make that mistake. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like you know, the, the financial markets are sort of, of uh, um, there's one rule. It's kind of like everybody, you know, kind of. Everybody wants to get. Everybody like kind of takes the stairs up. Everybody wants to take the elevator down. You know what I mean? Like, like for instance, that there's a stock. Let's say the stock is trading twenty bucks. You know, and guy puts on a position and he buys a thousand shares. A di- this is back in the day. You know, he's buying a thousand shares a day. You know, and he buys them for two hundred days. You know, and and the stock goes from twenty to thirty. Then all of a sudden, some bad news comes out. The guy's got two hundred thousand shares, and. He's, you know, now the stock's trading 10. He's like, where's the bid? For how much? 200,000. Well, the bids, there's no bid for 200,000. You know, you, you know, you took two months to get in and, uh, or however, 200 days to get in and all of a sudden you want to get out on one trade. And, um, and that's where Edgy was, you know, like, I forget, but it was huge. Like, I'm going to say, cause like he's, they asked for an offer on size and, Ed actually says to Edgy, he's like, I think you're off. And Edgy, <laughs> Edgy looks at Ned and it's like, dude, he's not selling it, man. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, so like, you know, he came in, like, it'd be the equivalent of the guy coming in and selling the straddle, you know, every Well, but day. it was the, I mean, the mastery of that situation was him recognizing, like, hey, man, these guys have been exactly. fucking us for months. That's why Edgy's retired and, they're, and, and they're we're still working. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, so... Um, just kind of as we as we kind of wrap things Hold up. Hold on, I I get one thing I have to say real quick. All right. Like, so, so the day, so I'm trying to think of the guy's name. The, the guy who's the head of equities. There's two. There were two head of equities at this time at uh, at uh, uh, at Bear. Um, John uh, Steve Meyer and uh, gosh, I'll think of the guy's name in a second. But uh, these are basically the guys that hold all the purse strings. These guys are getting paid the most. You okay. know? <laughs> right on. Right on. <laughs> Those guys, no, they're very talented guys, and uh, particularly Steve. And uh, so there's a, there's a picture on the cover of the Wall Street Journal because the head of equities gets up on the trading desk on the fourth floors where the derivatives desks were. And he's literally on my desk, 
And so like, I'm like leaning back like this, <laughs> you know, and there's like a picture of him like pointing there and he was really like, 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 you know, get on the phones, talk to your customers and blah, 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 which is funny because I'm a trader. I didn't have any customers, you know, the salespeople did, but uh, my customers were really other broker, were brokers. And, uh, but I was like on the phone trying to train because it was like training was so good. Like, Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> You're going to scare right. this guy. Right. You know? like, I'm fu- like, hey, this is going to be a really good train. Like, Don't know? fuck this up, man. Yeah. Well, so just to kind of rewind a little bit, like, yeah. can you tell me what one of the first or one of maybe the worst situations where you got caught on the wrong side of things? Like what happened? I mean, not technically what happened with the market, but like, what happened? Like, what did you do? Do you remember? Like, what was the feeling? And what did you do at the time to be like, man, I gotta unfuck this situation? There was one day, and I was trading the OEX, and that's options on the S P one hundred, which was, uh, it was a really rewarding year, but it was the most exhausting year of my career because there's no futures that goes with it. So every day, Aaron, that that, that trade was crazy. I mean. You would trade. You would head yourself in the S and P five hundred. This is kind of technical, but you're trading an option, but there's no underlying futures contract, and it's it's the it's it's a great product. It's a shame that, that the S and P never supported it with a uh, with a future with a future. And uh, it was the original. In fact, when people talk about the VIX and stuff, you probably hear people talk about the VIX. It's um, you know, so a lot of people use it, the, the the product today to, to to trade volatility sort of in an easy fashion. Um, and th- that all came out of the SM- out of the OEX pit, and so I was trading in the OEX pit, and there were two days. One was awesome, Aaron. Like, so I had two younger guys working with me, and I literally went up to them and said, "Don't sell anything." Like, it vol was just going nuts, and and these guys all they yeah, they were younger and. And they had sold something. They're trying to buy something back. And, and I mean, they missed it for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was like brutal. And they, so at the end of the day, they used to love to run their P&Ls and they ran the P&Ls and they, and they were both like hanging there and we had a massive day, but I didn't sell a single option, you know, <laughs> and everything went up, you know, and, and uh, so we ended up having a, a, a massive day, and that was the day that really... When you say massive day, like a big money-making day. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> and then um, there was another day when similar circumstances, and one of the guys in the pit had asked, he wanted to, um, he viewed, like he, he kind of viewed himself as a futures trader, and, and um, so when you're trading options, you're Position when the uh, when the future starts to move around, your position um, as you continue to update the volatilities of the options and move it for the underlying price, you're generating what we call deltas. So you're generating a delta is a, the way you mitigate it is you have to hedge it in the, with the futures contract. So Aaron, I swear I I get this risk run back. And it, it's like, I mean, smooth move like 50 bucks. Like it was a big day. And that's like, you know, I mean, back then you used to have massive days, you know, mm-hmm. it was like five, 6%. The smooth move. And I get a wrist run back and it says we're down, that the futures are down. I think it said we we're along a hundred spoos. Hundred. This is like a hundred futures contracts on the S and P five hundred. Yes, it was like probably like ten million bucks in stock essentially, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean it was, and and 
every dollar, it, what was it back then? It was $250 per dollar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so every time, every dollar is going down, we're losing $25,000. You know, like... Every point in the S&P. Every point in the S&P, and it's off like 60. Like, which way do you think it's going? <laughs> you know? And we're losing $25,000 per dollar down. And I remember, um, you know, and I was like, is this right? And I'm I, I'm out of, I'm out of the pit now. And I'm like, rerun it. And they reran it, and it came back right. I remember, you know, you know, I, 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 we might, we might maybe we're a little more because I remember turning around Aaron and doing one of these, you know, like sell a hundred, which is a huge trade. I mean, and the guys like the guys like, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, this is like a career decision here, man. Like this money's gone. Yeah, so like yeah, this I mean, money's gone. Like, you can through. sit here and pray, you know, all that we can do is make more money. But this money I'm not sitting here on my knees and like waiting for my, it to come back. Risking my career because, you know, you didn't have the you know uh, he should have he should have what, what he should have done was he should have done two things. He should have bought some options, number one. And number two is what he should have done. He should have had some, you know, well, yeah. So I just, have no idea. Just I, to summarize for people, I think what you're saying is, and I, I want to make sure I understand it correctly too, is like you have this other trader that's working for you. There are two you, other guys. Two other pit. guys. They're on the wrong side. Of, they're you know they own a bunch of stuff. The price keeps going down, and instead of selling stuff to like mitigate the loss, they basically just kind of freeze up, right? Well, and, all right. Two, two, two things. Uh, several things are going on here. So we had we had a position on where we're short options. So. Um, and the way options work, uh, as it goes lower, the future, as the asset that we're trading is going lower in price, we're getting longer at. Okay, so in other words, so like we're a, a byproduct of the option. Our position, our position. You don't actually have to buy more. You basically like you just be, you own become, more. You own, you start to own more as a product of the position. You yeah, have you're. Um, it's kind of like it's kind of like it's, think about it like it's, think about it like this. It'd be kind of like you're investing in apples, okay? And let's say you got, you buy a hundred apples, and the price is a dollar an apple, and you know you're right. And now all of a sudden, it goes down to eighty cents an apple, and you're not long a hundred now. Now you're long one hundred and fifty apples, okay? And then it goes down to seventy cents. And you're not long 150. Now you're long 200 apples at 70. Like at, at a certain, now you're make the numbers bigger. Like you know, now you're down. At this point, we're probably down a quarter million bucks. We're long 100 spoos, and he's sitting there. Like he, I probably did. I, you know what? I I probably didn't sell them all, Aaron, but I probably sold 80 percent of them. And you so know? I guess you know what I'm trying to and get I, after. And I, and I, and I, was, that, I was like, we, like what ahead. was going through your mind at the time? You know, you you get this risk report, right? Yeah. So, and just kind of for background, it's like this is before computer terminals in the pit. Like yeah. you're trading in the pit, and basically the clerks are going back and forth, putting in the trades and coming back and being like, well, "Hey, this is what your about, position looks like." The hard thing like. about you know, it, you know, trading's tough, man. You know, you're sitting there in the pit, you're making prices, and I hope your listeners can understand this, but um, it you know because it, it's, it's 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 like I said, it's it's not everybody's, I don't know. The point is, is that you're sitting there and things are getting more, you know, if you sell, and you're selling an, in, you know, uh, an intangible, you know, and you sell something for $5 and, 
and so now somebody's willing to pay six dollars for it. You know, and you're like, I like selling it. I gotta sell it at six. You know, and then it goes up to seven. I'll sell some more. You know, and at what point do you realize that seven's a buy because it's going to ten? That's what Edgy realized. Edgy realized wherever this thing trades, it's going higher, man. That's not the high. That's like the first trade on the way on the road to somewhere. You know, and. You know, how, how do you know that? I don't know how you know that. You know, you know the, the nice thing about the pit is you can feel it. Like there are some certain times where you're just like, can't you just feel it? Like I remember Jack used to say that he had one of the biggest compliments I ever got was like, because I would tell him, I was like, dude, it's going big. You can feel it, can't you? And he's like, I don't feel anything. I'm like, it's going <laughs> big, I'm telling you. You know, or it's coming off. Well, you know? but and, like, sorry. Go ahead. Anyway, so my, I, so how did I know that? So what's your question? Well, what was you're looking at this risk report and you what you were saying is like, hey, we can make more money tomorrow, but we got to be here tomorrow. Yes. To, right. Exactly. So what was your decision making process of, hey, I might sell this shit and the price might go up, you know, 10, you know, 10 percent from where we are right now. That doesn't matter. Like, I got to deal with the situation in the well, moment as as. Essentially, we're talking about triage, right? Yeah. It, well, definitely. Um, I mean, uh, personally, I never, as a trader, uh, one of my weaknesses, I think, was I never really felt that comfortable being short and things were going bad. You know what I mean? Like, I I felt much more comfortable being long and stuff was coming off than being short and stuff going bad. Because well, mm -hmm. you can lose a infinite amount of money if you're on the short side. <laughs> Maybe I, you know, it, and 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 again, it, it's it's Maybe not it's the velocity when, when, of the you, trade. when you think when yeah, it's a hard thing to like to when you um, when you start talking about the second derivative here, you know. Um, this podcast is officially the most vernacular heavy podcast we have ever engaged <laughs> I'm in. I'm sorry. Every, no, no, it's I'm cool. Sorry. It's cool. Everybody's like, military guys speak in vernacular. I'm like, yeah. oh, stock people. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. the I, I second think what derivative. I'm yeah, really the second what I'm derivative. What's, what's happening, is, you know, like, because when you, when you say, Brian, you know, uh, long, short, you're always thinking of linear, you know, you're always thinking of, or something's vertical, right? You know, you, you're thinking of, you know, like, up the price of a stock. But when you're talking about the volatility and being short the volatility, again, what's happening is if I'm long it's and things are going, if I'm long options and things explode, it's like, it's, it's, it's the, the complete opposite. So it's like the equivalent of owning 100 shares and the thing goes up 10% and now I'm long 200 shares. Like, it's awesome. Now, I have to pay money every day to own that position, like a premium. And and that premium's going to zero. So it's like a, you know, like you, you, you hope to hop on at the right time. It's like a rent you're paying. Yeah, like you're paying a rent, but as as, as it's awesome as it goes, like, you know, like I, I, I remember one of my first days in the Bun Pit. I couldn't believe this. I, I, I bought a, stra it was near expiration. I paid 30 for a straddle. And, I remember because we were trading the figure, so that means that we were trading. Let's say we were trading a thousand, and and it went, and I paid thirty for the straddle, and it went up to thirty, Aaron, and I dumped thirty futures, you know, and it broke, you know, I went back to zero, I bought them all back, and now I own the straddle for zero, and I was like, I made all the premium I'd spent on the straddle, 
I made it back on Which my is future. A, for everyone listening, is like a combination of options. Yeah, it's like it's an a, option strategy. Yeah, it's an option. It's, it's the um, put and the call in the same in that same strike, and. And ne- so, so now you now, literally I, I took a confusing situation <laughs> right. and you <laughs> made it four times more I'm confusing. Well, what, I, what I'm trying to get, at, <laughs> but, 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 but being sh- back to, I'm sorry. It's right. much, it's did you make, to, did you make a lot more, of money low risk? Yeah. No, <laughs> I'm trying to get more on the whole thing of like, yeah, how do you, how do you know? Like shit's going bad. Yeah, the market's you know? moving really quickly, right? Like you're saying you're long, the market's coming off. And you said, hey, man, I just turned around and was like, we got to sell some shit. So, like, what was the decision-making process in Aaron, your mind? it was really quick for me, man. Like, I, I, I really viewed it as a career decision. Like, in other words, if I sold 70 spoos or, I, you know, I probably sold 70% of what we were along at least, maybe mm-hmm. 80%, maybe 100 I mean, I, I was pissed. And, um, but... I, you know, if you if you sell a hundred percent and the thing rallies back to unchanged, you know, art's going to tell you tell you you're a complete idiot. If you sell seventy percent and it goes back to unchanged, you did the right thing, you know. And but I didn't think it was risk, coming. Risk mitigation. Yeah, I I, I probably sold a hundred percent, thinking, okay, if this thing goes back to unchanged, they're going to hammer the vol. We'll make back some money on the vol, and we can keep trading, and we'll make back, you know, we'll make back some money. Um, basically what you're saying is like me, locking it was, in that it was loss. totally, it was, yeah, it's totally, it was not the, it's not the, I was not put there. I was put there to scalp the volatility, not to take a shot on 70 or hundred spoofs, you the, know, the so, bad known was worse, was, was better than the worse unknown. Like, and I feel yeah, like always, you know, like, like you got you guys be, are both very knowledgeable on the subject. Right. And I think that like what you're asking Aaron of rule mm-hmm. is simply answered by the idea that like, like rule keeps giving an answer without saying it, which is that he's hyper educated. He is so knowledgeable about what he's working with that. Like it's, it's a snap judgment. Like, Hey man, Things went crazy. I know what the right answer is because I'm educated. So when you're like, how do you make these hard decisions? It's like, you just know because you've done well, all your homework. And I'm trying to make a correlation to like what Brian, you know, basically to hope like to the military side of things. We right? know like, the basics you know, really well. You're in so a really shitty situation. In a shitty situation, we make, we make decisions. We don't make good ones necessarily all the time, but we make decisions. Well, that's what he's saying, right? Yeah. Like instantly I'm making a decision. And it's because not doing anything is, is a worse bad than, decision. Yeah, is, is worse a, than doing that, something. Not doing anything to me was not acceptable. And on top of that, like being as comfortable with your training or what your knowledge base, you know, the the primary reason that people choke in st- stressful situations is because they overthink the situation. And because you know, they if don't... You're a, if you're a professional yeah. pianist, right, and you, you're playing some concerto and you start to have a flub or two... You're playing that thing on autopilot, right? There's no way you can consciously control your hands to do that piece of music. You're on autopilot. So if you start overthinking it, you're just going to keep fucking it up worse and worse and worse. Whereas in those high-stress situations, what you have to do is rely on You're not your making instinct, a decision. You know, you're like out of your headspace. Well, you know, I've always tried to relax, right? In other words, even if I'm racing you know, back in the day and we took a bad stroke... You know, and and at that level, taking a bad stroke is really bad because I mean, you, you've probably che- cost yourself a place at the finish. Like you're not gonna, you can't. It's too competitive. You're not gonna make it up. But <coughs> you know, and I and I think I did learn that you know from rowing. Just relax, you know, and, and do your best. You know, just do your best. Have fun. Well, you know? and you're at a but, level too where like 
you're going through the motions in your head well before you do anything, right? Like you are obsessive about your strokes and what you're looking for from everybody around you. But once the, the race starts or once the, the trading is on, you're not thinking about that stuff anymore. Now it's like just instinctual, like Brian was saying, like you're reacting. Well, I mean, in, in fairness, like in, in what happened in that particular trading situation, um, and I picked a disaster, you know. Um, well, that's what I wanted to hear about. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> no one yeah. wants to hear about the, the boring I days, mean, I, right? I had other disasters, much bigger disasters happen, but they weren't, I didn't do anything wrong. This was wrong. Like, we, you know, this happened because the guy should have sold futures. He should have sold them 15 bucks ago. You know, he should actually, he probably, he should, uh, for the volatility we were trading at the time, we were probably trading 20 vol. Aaron, he should have sold futures, you know, like I, I think I probably asked him, he had sold futures, but he had always under, he was always selling like, you know, at one SD selling, you know, 40% of our Delta instead of one SD selling about 70% of the Delta. Can you articulate what that accounts for in time? Like, like when you're saying like he should have sold earlier, which is what I'm getting, right? Yeah. Like how much time has spanned before he made a bad decision in not selling? Okay, the whole thing probably was over. So I'm guessing that was probably 11 a.m. And the market in that pit in Chicago opened at um, what, 8.30? Yeah. So, so it, three probably, hours? It, it was probably, yeah, it's probably, it was probably 10.30, 11. So um, at what point we probably came in, I bet you on a day like that, you probably come in and the market's already down a percent, right? And mm -hmm. you're training 20 vol. So at probably within the first five minutes of the day, we would have, <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. Yeah. At the first five minutes of the day, he, we probably at that point would have generated say, um, 20 spoofs. He probably should have sold 15 and he ended, he probably sold seven or eight. You know what like I mean? right out of the gate, it but was that, right that out of the gate. It was just, a disaster. Yeah, and that mistake and got bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm like, because I, re I remember saying this is a long time. This is 20 years ago, and I remember saying to, I was like, well, "What have you sold?" And he had sold stuff. I'm like, "Dude, like, are you kidding me?" Like, yeah. Well, so anyway, um, hey man. No, I mean it's interesting, man. I, I also uh, like the fact that this is also our longest. This podcast. is definitely our longest podcast ever. So well, I, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be edited down to something. No, no, no. 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 We let this We're stuff roll. roll. I, honestly, I mean, shit. I wish we could go for like another hour and a half. Yeah, man. But uh, yeah, I well, might learn uh, something. I think if we we'll, we'll talk more at lunch. We'll, we'll educate uh, young young. They will come back here. from round two. Yeah, we <laughs> <Absolutely>. do. <that. laughs> what awesome. I know is that I'm going to have Brian teach me how to play roulette. And I will right. do equally as well. <laughs> See, as that's exactly why I don't gamble. See, that's a game for idiots. You should not be playing. <laughs> Brian tells me there's a system. There's no system. I've never any, once played roulette. Any, no, sorry. It's uh, whatever the craps. Brian plays craps, craps and has a system. Craps, I can understand. Doug, you know, I don't even know Brian what the gambling in like, is. In the Rain Man suits coming down the escalator. <laughs> I give Brian $100 when we go gambling. He makes me enough money that I get to drink fancy cognac. I'm like his date. I hang on his arm. I wear very little clothing. You know, that's the whole thing about training. You want to be in a in a game that is not 50-50 and roulette's not even 50-50. You yeah. know what I mean? You know, so you, you and by virtue of the fact that you get to make markets in, you know, we always thought, well, I know that you know that you probably had a 65% chance of winning, 60-65% chance of winning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Roll, thanks for coming to join us today, man. <laughs> My pleasure. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's super awesome. Coming at you from Softlead HQ, we will see you next week.